0: In this episode, we will be doing TFOS 1863 to 1876, and as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1863 Story number one, Children of Terror, written by MWMN19. It had been nearly a millennium since the great and vast human empire collapsed, shattered into thousands of desperate nations. So much history had been lost eons. Colonies had either been abandoned, many of them either died or full struggled, barely surviving. Some thrived and made their own small empires, some stagnated. To this day, many bold explorers venture into the unknown, only to discover old and abandoned outposts of the former empire. Rarely, small isolated human populations are found, like contacted tribes living in their own little marvels. Thousands of languages and cultures formed. Many humans don't look alike, even though the time span in the evolutionary sense is minuscule. The presence exerted on humans living in less hospitable environments expedited the evolutionary process. In the wake of the chaos, and as our great past faded from memory and from record, a handful of people made it their life goal to hoard as much information about our history, science, and culture as possible such as the goal of the young man we see today the lone wolf who goes through the void making ends meet with small jobs he finds as he ventures throughout the void his small ship is considered ancient by almost everyone but the contents within are even more so other than digitized information which is held in the vessel's computers he has physical copies of books an object which is considered to be a relic of an age-long past. From many engineering books depicting old machines, which are comparatively primitive with the technology offered, turbines and steam engines, internal combustion engines, and old building techniques, science books, which detail theories and equations, some facts stood the test of time, some were debunked long ago, history books, which detailed the history of the cradle of human civilization, Earth. The young man is far, far from Earth. It is questionable if he even saw the planet itself. As a vagabond who visited many worlds in spite of his young age, few decide to take the pilgrimage to the old world. Some people straight up deny that Earth was our birthplace, thinking that mankind has always been in the stars. The man sits at the helm of a small ship he commandeered for so long, Red lights blaring as he panics and tries desperately to fix whatever's going on. Glancing here and there into the back, where the wealth of knowledge stands. He knows that death is highly possible. He is in an unexplored part of the sector. Even if he admits a distress signal, it is highly unlikely that it will reach anyone in time. He is on his own. In his desperation, he finds a scan of the system he's in. And in a stroke of amazing luck, there is a planet which is hospitable for humans nearby. He sets course for the planet, using the little fuel he has left to at least land somewhere. The vessel creaks as the burning orange color of re-entry envelops the craft as it enters the blue atmosphere of this alien world. The young man fights with the controls as he tries to steer the vessel to land on solid ground. The clouds block his view, but he could see hints of ocean below. As he descends below the clouds, he can see the land in the distance, a heavily forestalled area with hills. He pushes an acceleration deeper as far as it went to push the ship towards the land. The landing was not gentle. The trees eased the blow and damage that could have been catastrophic. The young man remained conscious throughout the ordeal, only slightly injuring himself during the not-so-graceful landing. When he opened his eyes, he... Was alive. He stood up from his seat to investigate the damage. He first checked the computers and storage room of the vessel. He saw that the majority of the books and information were intact. A miracle. He put his suit on in case the senses of the ship had been mistaken, then ventured outside to inspect the exterior damage. He could immediately see that the damage was irreparable. With the tools at his disposal, it would be impossible to repair the ship. Communications went down, and even if they were in function, it is unlikely anyone would pick them up. The forest around him was green and lush. Even from the inside of his helmet, he could hear the variety of sounds that the wildlife of this planet produced. He was cautious, observing his surroundings and that no predator has a jump on him. He's on the undocumented planet, after all. He grabbed a testing kit from his ship to confirm the atmosphere is breathable. Even though there is thick vegetation, it could all be poisonous for all he knew. As he clicked the small button on the device which tested the air around him, he could hear a shuffling from beyond the tree line. His gaze quickly came towards the general direction from which the sound came from. He inspected that area in detail. He couldn't see anything, but as soon as he thought it was just his imagination, the bushes started to move, and from them emerged a large animal. The animal was familiar to the young man. It was a an native animal from another faraway planet. It was a horse. And on top of the beast was another being clad in chainmail and an iron helmet. Soon enough, the figure was joined by another two beings on horseback. The first being removed its helmet and revealed a face. A human face. Just as the young man wanted to say something, the small device in his hand beeped. Atmospheric scan complete. Survivability 100%. The three men on horseback winced at the device. They spoke an unknown language, but the four quickly came to a mutual understanding. We go up beyond the treetop and look into the horizon, the great forest stretching far. In the distance, smoke could be seen, indicating that a settlement was not too far from the crash site. The day turns to night, then into day again, accelerating. The smoke remains stagnant, joined by more lines of smoke every so often. Soon, we can see as the trees start to be cut down. Houses are erected and roads built. Soon, those houses become larger buildings, smokestacks, reaching high and spewing black smoke. We see the forest become a town, farmland, spanning far and wide. Time slows down and we reach down to the place where the young explorer once crashed. A large building now stands here. The street outside is filled with activity. We see horse-drawn carts and wagons and even a few primitive cars rolling down the street. We enter the building, seeing the spacious interior with hallways in front of us, to the left and to the right. We go forward. We see countless works of art and artifacts dotting the hall. We look to the left and see thick glass panel. A plaque detailing the object held within is written in a familiar alphabet, the Latin alphabet but it is in a wholly new language, containing some letters completely foreign to the original script. But the nature of this object is self-evident. Once we set our eyes on it, a book, old and worn out, fading letters telling us its name, the Holy Bible. We continued down the hall to see multiple examples of similar glass panels holding ancient artifacts, some of them foreign and some familiar. But the hallway... As its end. At the end of the wall, we come to a large circular room with a rounded roof. Painted in black with small white dots, it has the same look as a clear night sky. In the center of the room, it is a statue of a man in a spacesuit pointing towards the ceiling. In the center of the ceiling is a map of the continents of the Mother Palette. North and South America, Europe, Africa, Asia, Australia, Antarctica. There is a small plaque that only has one sentence written on it in two languages, one in the old tongue called English and one in the native tongue of those of this world. You stand on the shoulders of giants. Do not forget them, children of terror. End of story. Story number two, Ion Cannon, written by Pepulon. When we went into war with the humans, we quickly learnt of their powers in battle resulting in a war that lasted barely one of our lunar cycles. In case you're wondering, our lunar cycle is roughly two-thirds of the humans. Sure, the scariest weapons in both combatants were the planet-destroying weapons. Oh, wipe off that incredulity you're showing with your feathers. Every single species in the galaxy has a planet-destroying weapon, but using one is a certain signing of one's own extermination. So they're used only as a weapon of last resort. For me, besides those ultimate weapons, there are two human weapons that for me are simply the scariest. Two kinds of ion cannons. The first one is the flying ion cannon. The three Zerk long dreadnought built around a cannon that's about, uh, almost two kilometers. Flying in space, firing ionized gas atoms at a fraction of the speed of light in a controlled, aimed, tight beam. In the vacuum of space, it is as devastating as relativistic projectiles. But within a planet's atmosphere, it plasmatizes the air around the beam, becoming pillars of fire that consume everything within one circle around it. And it still hits with the devastating of a planet-bombard projectile, only without a large crater. Just a small one, as the invariably military target's munition depot exploded. The second one, though, for me, is a scarier one. It does not fire relativistic atoms. It doesn't even launch any kind of projectiles. But it brought down the communications, stopping calculations and war strategies, and ultimately brought our defeat. It is a weapon designed to bring civilizations to its needs. When TCV Grace Hopper jumped in, we didn't pay it any particular attention. It looked just like other Terran cruisers, except with more escorts. Probably carrying a high-ranking officer to oversee the combat. No. We didn't pay the ship any particular attention, until it started patching into our interplanetary and interplanetary network. Within hours, we surrendered. Had the humans deployed the hacking tool, low-orbit ion cannon from the beginning, this would have been embarrassingly the shortest interspecies war ever. Hmm. I wonder, could it be that the humans purposely prolonged the war just to show off their weaponry, since after the war, the humans' weapons became highly sought after? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1864. Story number one. Joyful. Written by Nora Naya Toast. Before the day in the forest, she had run only three times in her life. It was unseemly for a fae to run. They were supposed to espouse calm and authority. And being seen to move faster than a gentle glide was a betrayal of those qualities they had cultivated for generations. She thought it silly, and had questioned why diplomats had to act this way. But the word of her mother was the law in her household. Her question stopped not long after. The first time she ran was as a child, caught up in excitement by something long forgotten. She had moved towards her mother with haste. In response, she was fixed with a cold glare, and a hand on her shoulder. That was far too firm. "'We don't run, darling.' Her mother had hissed, Never let others see you act so inappropriately. The excitement deflated out of the child, and she spent the rest of the day with watery eyes. That day, running was shameful. The second time she ran was as an adult, and her homeworld was torched by raiders of the north. In the face of death, her calmness shattered. She sprinted away from the epicenter of the attack, screaming in fear as buildings shuddered and fell to their knees around her. She remembered little of that day, except how her legs and feet hurt for weeks after. That day, running saved her life. A human scout ship, visiting for respite and caught up in the fighting, spotted her in a field as she outran a wall of fire. They swooped down and rescued her. The captain pulled her into a hug as the ship exited the atmosphere. She stood wooden, unable to hug back, cry, or say a single word. For two years, she did not speak. The human crew were friendly, banter flowed between them like water, and although the fame they rescued didn't respond with words, she smiled at their jokes and pulled faces instead. When her entire race vanished, the survivors of the Torching packing themselves into starships and leaving without a trace, the humans kept her ground. Over time, they became closer than family, and over those two years as they visited world after world and introduced her to ideas and ways of life that she could never have imagined, she eventually came to trust them with her life. The third time she ran was on Earth. The humans took her to see their homeworld, parking the ship in an area surrounded by woodland. Her and one of the humans found the captain's stash of alcohol and shared it with the crew. The entire crew was soon rolling around and giggling and making sport of throwing bottle caps at each other. Later, in the light of the full moon, the feigned woman and three of the humans stumbled out of the ship towards the woodland. Hey! ay, r- race you to the clearing!' one of the humans called and took off into the thicket. One human followed, laughing, still holding a bottle of beer. The third looked at the feigned woman, seeming to stare right at her soul with hazy eyes. Run with us, she said, just once. You don't have to keep up appearances here. Then she took off as well. The famed woman, tipsy and a little confused but eager to take part in the fun, started to walk, following them. But her legs acted on their own accord, and suddenly she was running, following the humans by the sound of their laughter. And as she ran through the thicket, hair catching on branches and skin being snagged by the occasional thorn, she started to catch up to the rest. As she did, they whooped and hollered in encouragement. The wind picked up, casting dead leaves into a spiral, and she felt the kiss of the cold on her face. Her breath came fast, but the world seemed to slow as adrenaline coursed through her veins. It was at that moment that he emerged into a clearing. She was fast, faster than she had realized and she had beaten everyone else. As she looked to the sky, she saw the light of the full moon, illuminating the clearing in a glow reminiscent of her homeworld. Her world tilted on its axis. She became hyper-aware of herself. The thrum of her heart, the air gasping in her lungs, the adrenaline in her veins throwing everything she saw into sharp relief, the static in her feet as they crunched towards the undergrowth. For a moment... She swore she could feel the planet itself breathing. She could almost see the threads of life and fate which had pulled everything together in this moment. It was as if the veil had been lifted from her eyes. She opened her mouth, and for the first time in two years, words tumbled out. Joy, and love, and grief, all tangled up into syllables. That night, the humans celebrated and cried as she told them... About her homeworld, about her mother, and about how much she had come to love her crewmates. That day, running was joyful, and from that day, the world felt a little more colourful. After that, she ran many, many times. The crew, while on a pit stop, entered her into a marathon on a planet known as the Sea of Lilies. She protested at first, but eventually acquiesced. The captain, having long forgiven her for stealing her alcohol, put her on a training regimen. She became strong and took over much of the physical labor of the ship. As it turned out, fame became fearsomely strong when they trained, and more than once she caught some of the crew staring at her in awe as she carried a box five times her weight. It dawned on her why her race had been so averse to exertion. They had been afraid of frightening others, but she knew her friends were not afraid of her. Her being in a marathon was a source of curiosity and discussion. The Fane had not been seen in three years, and for one to reappear so suddenly, and in a marathon no less, was perturbing to Benny. Nevertheless, she attended, ignoring the attention trained on her by the other races. The memories of her past swiveled in her as she ran. The shame of running as a child. The fear as she ran for her life as the Fane homeworld burned. The joy of the wind in her face and the branches in her hair as she ran with the humans, with whom she now shared a bond of astonishing strength. She felt the burn in her legs and the gasping in her lungs, but she continued, determined to show this world who she was. She won. Why did you enter? One reporter asked her in the aftermath as she held the middle aloft and was lit up by a flash of cameras. The humans I travel with saved me, she replied. They saved my life. Ah, but they saved my sanity too. They taught me how joyful it is to just, uh, let go of everything and run. She wiped a tear from her eye, then continued. Maybe my people will see what I've done someday. Maybe they'll come back. Maybe. Maybe they'll realize that they don't have to pretend to be something they're not. That evening, She received an encrypted message, its source unclear. I am proud of you. I was mistaken when I told you your actions were inappropriate. She would cherish that message for the rest of her life. End of story. Story number two. The Lost Song, written by a glass of whiskey. In summary... The ordering of the planets forms a secret message, no doubt left behind by some immensely powerful ancient being. Today I've deciphered and shown that message to you. It had been a long presentation, but he felt he nailed the finish, although the last half an hour was more of a mixed result. loud snoring from his only audience member was a large part of that. It had really screwed up his rhythm. Yes, yes, you're in that case said his still slightly dazed audience. He had woken up to the sound of air horns, some kind of demonstration how messages could be stored in short and long blasts of sound. Those long parts had really made an impression on him. The audience member continued, Already knew that. Got that memo and the presentation, unfortunately. You can stop with the sales pitch and the air horns. Just tell me, why are you here? There was some scraping of hooves. Uh, I need to borrow your spaceship. No, you don't. Remember what happened the last time. Come on! Oh, that, that was one time. Wanted to watch a supernova, was it? Did a bit more than scratch the paint, frankly. I'm surprised you even survived. And now you want to do it again? No, no, didn't you listen to a word I said? Ancient civilization! Secret message! Come on! Right, and no murder bots this time. That... Hardly ever happens. Twice. It's happened twice. With a deep sigh, he took a look at his crazy friend, then reached deep within and found forgiveness, in the hope that he might get to witness his friend making a very large and silly fool of himself. Fine, I'll let you borrow my spaceship. Woohoo! It had been an unlikely victory, but a fine one. But I'm coming with you, and I'm flying. What? But, but what if there are murder bots? Yeah, this time we check before there is murder bots there. Not after landing and seeing them scramble all over the ship trying to get in. They walk to the spaceship and prepare the necessary supplies. Such as snacks. All right, let's go. Where is this place anyway? I just showed you on this chart over here. Uh, Look, it's here. Looks like a bit of black to me. Of course it does. It's in the middle of space. So most likely this is just a space trip to the middle of nowhere. We will find nothing before going home. No way, ancient beings. Code, there's a 110% guaranteed chance. 110% guaranteed chance later. Right, now we are here and there is nothing. Uh, Can we go home now? You need to reduce your velocity a little bit to the left. Okay, done. Now we are still in the middle of nowhere. Can we go home now? Wait just a minute. I think I'm starting to hear it. Hear what? The song. That's what we're looking for. The code talks about some strange song. Oh, you're just, a. Uh... Hey. You're right. You're... You're actually right. You don't need to sound so surprised about that. Shh! Let's just... Listen. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1865. Story number one. Home Away from Home, written by C. Span. The irritating thing about faster-than-light communication is that, in order for it to be truly effective, it has to be invented twice. Sure, but it's nifty to have lagless telecommunications across a whole planet or directly remote control over rovers on Mars, but that's nothing compared to interstellar communication. And the problem is, in order for there to be interstellar communication, there has to be someone to talk on another star. Going to other stars solely to talk to the place you just left is a bit of a silly idea. So that leaves aliens. And since there's no practical way to talk with said aliens without a faster-than-light communication system, both ends of the conversation need to invent an entirely separately. When humanity first switched on its interstellar telephone for the first time, everyone was pleasantly surprised to find someone else already on the line. The aliens, who had been patiently sending out messages and waiting for a response for about 50 years, were overjoyed to finally have someone to talk to. Well, talk may be a strong word. For reasons that nobody without multiple doctorates could adequately explain, FDL communication was limited to binary on-off signals. This presented several challenges. Imagine for a moment, you are locked in a small room with nothing but a light switch. You are informed that you have a counterpart in another room who you have never met before and whose language you do not speak. Your light switch controls the light in their room. They have an identical light switch that controls the light in your room. Your task is to accurately convey complex messages to your counterpart and receive messages in return using nothing but the light switch. This is roughly analogous to the challenge of two newly connected species faced. Fortunately for everyone involved, there were a whole bunch of very smart mathematicians, linguists, scientists, and experts of all fields on both sides of the line. And a viable communication standard was worked out. The fact that it took three decades was actually seen as a major accomplishment. Of course, a species doesn't get to the level of interstellar telecommunications by being content with things and everyone involved was eager to actually meet their new potential friends from across the very large pond. Unfortunately, while both species were located in the same galaxy, they were still multiple trillions of kilometers apart. Visits was just barely okay with sending massless particles faster than light, but decided to draw a hard line at sending mass. Any and all attempts either failed utterly, or caused physics to throw a hissy fit and storm off in a half resulting in regions of space where the laws of time no longer function properly, or something. It's not like anyone was ever kind enough to return and tell everyone what was going on in there, so faster than light travel was off the table. Both species attempted to solve the distance barrier in different ways. The aliens, being the much more sensible of the two species, continued to try and develop faster than light travel, and also invested heavily in telepresence robotics, to better emulate actual face-to-face conversations. The humans collectively decided that the aliens were taking a boring approach and opted to just pop by for a visit. Preparing ships for a journey that would last millennia is a difficult task. There are no gas stations in interstellar space, so each ship needs to be its own entirely self-contained ecosystem. It turns out that building a perfectly sealed ecosystem that would be able to sustain itself for millennia is hard. So hard, in fact, that it was deemed easier to take a pre-built ecosystem and just move that instead. Fortunately, there was a very handy pre-built ecosystem just laying around called uh, Earth. Moving an entire planet through interstellar space is a bad idea. There are many problems with the concept, not the least of which was that because interstellar space was really, really cold. The entire biosphere would freeze to a halt long before you reached your destination. This problem, and many others, was solved in the most over-the-top way possible. If the planet couldn't survive outside the solar system, the solar system itself should be moved. This was, obviously, insane. But humanity was mostly a race of mad bastards with too much confidence in their own abilities and an unhealthy degree of spite towards the very laws of nature themselves. And so, with the attitude that can largely be described as, Well, I'll be damned if I let the universe tell me where I can park my solar system, humanity embarked on the largest engineering project ever. A stellar engine is a simple idea that is extraordinarily hard to execute. If you can somehow build a thruster large enough to move the sun, everything orbiting the sun will trail along with it like debris in the wake of a speedboat. The challenge, of course, is moving the sun. The solution, as implemented, involved a lot of electromagnetic field manipulation, solar plasma extraction, nuclear fusion, and, somewhat counterintuitively, a thruster pointed back at the sun for counterbalance. It was the sort of thing that got a lot of engineers very, very excited, and everyone else very, very bored. Building a planet-sized megastructure designed to move a star is something that takes a long time and a lot of resources. As the largest infrastructure project ever, it was also great for the economy. The engine, affectionately nicknamed Thrusty McThrustface, was completed in a mere few centuries and was ceremonially activated on the 500th anniversary of First Contact. The journey itself would take much longer and many more generations. But everyone agreed that it would be worth it to see the looks on the alien's faces when we finally arrived. End of story. Story number two, Little Brother, written by Infernalism. His instinct had been to browbeat the quivering drone with a healthy dose of anger. Instead, he calmed the drone with a few perfectionary strokes of his antenna upon the drone's head before instructing him to repeat himself. The pirate says he's from vibrant life. It, uh, it, the hunter thought, not he. Our costs were no longer one of the people. A lie, a filthy untruth, an obscene social habit picked up from socializing with non-people species, no doubt, but was such to be expected from the hiveless scum outcasts. Vibrant life was destroyed ten cycles ago by a rogue void star on their way to colonize a new system. Such was the truth, given down by the speakers of explanation as to why the whole hive had been lost. Even scattered as they were, they felt the expiration of a billion people, and the speakers had addressed the issue after investigation. Yes, Hunter, but now came the burst of anger. Part thought, part sent. Bathing the drogue in its superior's fury. But, but what? He hasn't been shown. He has his antennae. That's not possible. His whole crew has their antennae. All of them. The report was simplicity itself. An alien craft had been captured by Warm Spring on their way to the new home system to colonize and spread. The ship was made of metal and alien materials that stunk of hydrocarbons and burned his eyes even at 50 marching units. The pirate captain stunk as well, but they'd set up an incense around him to stifle the stench. The pirate captain himself was strange, as the drone had reported. He had his antennae, so he wasn't an outcast, but he was cloaked in a strange material a custom with some people that colonized colder worlds until their bodies adapted to the cold. It wasn't cold, but he still wore his drapings. Some were natural leather, crude hide and flesh from other species. Others were hunks of metal and strange-smelling things that weren't unpleasant by default, but were disconcerting in their alien nests. The captain stood when the hunter walked in and to his everlasting shock, gave him an immaculate greeting, one warrior to another. I am Scout Longrunner, and I am here to give my report. To Speaker Truthwalker, from Hunter Sure Strike, Commander of Warm Spring, regarding Vibrant Life. I am including the report of the Hiveless person that identifies himself as Scout Longrunner of Vibrant Life. He and his crew of 40 were picked up last week and after vigorous interrogation, all of them gave the same standard report with negligible differences. You must forgive the report's strange word, as many of the words contained therein are no equivalent in the people's language. A glossary will follow the report to try and explain some of the terms. Either all of them are speaking the same non-truth while managing to mask both thoughts and smiles an astonishing feat, or our speakers have lied to us. I leave this matter in your hands. We were ordered to a new system discovered by the seers some cycles earlier. They found a lush system with a number of habitable worlds and many rooms around a gas giant and a Paradise-class world as well. The Seer's report indicated that the system was occupied by a space-faring civilization that had colonized many of those moons and was largely concentrated around the Paradise world. My crew and I were ordered in to study the system ahead of the Hive's arrival. They had picked up on the Hive's arrival. We ran into automated defenses at the very edge of the system. Nuclear homing mines, weapon platforms, nothing we hadn't seen before. We never saw any natives. They stayed ahead of us, evacuating to the paradise world. We got repeated transmissions from the species. Something our translator stated was a simple statement. Wait for little brother, whatever that meant. Again, nothing we hadn't seen before. We disabled what we could and our callers sent back detailed maps of the defense networks and continued scouting inward into the system. They never set up a single line of manned defense, just automated system, minefields. By the time Vibrant Life arrived, we found the simplest and easiest path inward to the Paradise World and we called back to the Hive with this pathing for them to take. The Hive had made little work of their defense networks and fields. Vibrant life was vast, a true hive in every sense of the word. It dwarfed some of the moons of the system and carried enough firepower to decimate a world without pause. The species on this paradise had no idea what was coming for them. They had one last line of defense between their moon and the paradise itself. A vast, almost half-spherical network of weapon platforms and automated nuclear missile systems that appeared to be proximity-oriented. So, vibrant life simply moved around to the far side, negating this lethal defense entirely. Like many species, this one did not think in three dimensions, or so we assumed. Once the hive had moved to the far side, they set off their singularity bomb a focused, aimed singular, a void star that was placed in the hive's flank, catching the hive between the weapon network and the deadly grasp of the void star's gravity well. We watched as the Hive was struck between the two, horrified, but then cheered as the Hive righted itself and found a balance between the two. We sang the song of conquest as the Hive's surface rippled and opened to show a thousand thousand plasma cannons coming to bear on the alien metal cities below. When the Hive began to splinter, we had no idea what was happening. It began to burn and melt, almost at random. The fields of cultivated plasma cannons melting and bubbling. The great cavernous hangar bays burning. Thousands of attack craft burning in their bays and birthing pits. I can still hear the screaming as they died. Chaos then. The speakers were shouting a dozen directives at once. Their unity broken by the pain and burning of the hive. We, at the same time, we're frantically trying to find out what was happening, one of my watches screamed into the connection to switch to infrared heat vision. We had, and nearly burned out all three of my eyes. It was coming from their star, or rather from a small world orbiting their star, lancing beams of concentrated light, a makeshift laser. Three of them, reaching out from that small burnt world, cutting into the hive, cutting it up like you would do an overripe bit of fruit. The Hive was caught between a lethal weapon platform and the Void Star's raging gravity well. The only way forward was to crash into the planet itself. The other was to go back and go around and that meant exposure to those lethal lasers for the whole way. So we watched as they tried to brave the weapons platform and watched as our Hive got torn apart. Billions died as they ejected from the Hive in a survival craft and they burned them. In the visible spectrum, they simply exploded into carbon dust. Every pot, every person trying to escape the hive was burned alive by those invisible beams. Like a great god, wiping them away with a swipe of his claw. When the cannons were silent and no more pods emerged from the dying hive, thousand thousand metal ships lifted off from the paradise world and descended onto the vibrant life. We fled and we've been running and fighting them ever since. I was a scout, but now I am the last remaining hunter, seer, and speaker of the vibrant life. And I bring you the bloody truth, bought at the cost of billions of lives. Stay away from the system. Death lives here. End of story. Tales from outer Space, 1866 Story number one. The Caretakers, written by C-SPAN. From a distance, it was hard to tell the ship was in fact a ship at all. You could be forgiven for thinking that it was merely two asteroids tumbling through space. But if you looked closer, you could make out the glitter of radiators and solar panels, the seemingly randomly placed bell nozzles, and the occasional glint of starlight reflecting off the cables connecting the two bodies. To be fair, your initial impression would have been half right. One of the rocks was just that, simply counterbalance for spin-gravity generation. But the other was a spaceship, one designed to weather the harsh interstellar radiation and sustain itself across the centuries required to deliver its precious cargo. Buried deep within the heart of the ship were millions of gametes, more than enough to give humanity a fresh start under the light of a new star. There were also six people. These six people were probably the most detached from the human condition as it was possible to be. They were born on the ship, and they would die on the ship. To them, an open sky, sun, unprocessed air, nutrients that hadn't already passed through their bodies hundreds of times, and a social circle larger than six people, were utterly foreign concepts. They were caretakers of perhaps the single most important piece of cargo in human history. Their job was to maintain the ship, deal with the unexpected hazards, incubate and raise the next generation of caretakers, and die. And they had absolutely no say in the matter. When your entire universe consists of nine rooms with instant death a few meters away, you only two options are to perform the tasks you were trained to do from birth, or die horribly in an accident at Doom. The human race in the process. Teenage Rebellion couldn't quite overcome the survival instinct. One of the few crew members of the ship was a man. This man had a name. He was of the opinion that it was rather a nice name, but that ultimately didn't matter. His name would be functionally lost to history, relegated to a list in a subsection of a footnote that nobody would ever bother to read. The names of the first generation would be remembered. They were the brave men and women who set out on a journey to another star. The names of the last generation, the ones who completed their centuries-long journey and set foot on a new world, they would be remembered too, but not the people in the middle. The man knew this and was a little disquieted by it. He consoled himself that he was critical to the mission and the long-term success or failure of the project may well depend entirely on him. That's what the previous generation told him, after all. Technically speaking, that was a lie. While the ship was designed with a crew of six in mind, as few as two people could theoretically operate the entire craft. Everyone was trained on every part of the ship's operation. It's true that the man was the only one who had maintained the delicate hydroponic systems that kept the crew fed. But this was simply because he was the best at it, not because he was the only one capable. The man knew all this, too, but chose to ignore it to preserve his sanity. The man was, however, special in a way the other caretakers of the ship were not. He was special because he was going to push a button. Everyone on the ship had pushed thousands of buttons, of course, But this was a special button. It would only be pressed once, as it did one thing and one thing only. It opened the massive solar sail that would catch the light from the destination star and use it to slow the entire craft down. The force exerted by the light from this far away was minuscule, and the ship was going incredibly fast, so it would take several centuries to come to a stop. However... It was the only way to decelerate the ship without using the reaction mass, so it would have to do. Reaction mass was the single most precious commodity on the ship. As there was nowhere to get more, there aren't very many gas stations in interstellar space after all. The button actually wasn't strictly necessary, as the ship's computer was capable of opening the sail at the precise microsecond it needed to but the ship's designers believed in nothing if not redundancy. So there was a physical button that opened the sail, in the event that all four of the ship's computers failed. They hadn't, but the opening of the sail was the most significant event in the lives of the caretakers aboard the ship, and they were determined to do more than just stare at a computer screen. The slight error in opening time introduced by human reaction time was negligible this far out. The caretakers found out that one of them would get to push the button when they were children. Later that same day, they made a bet. The man won the bet, so thirty years later, he was the one standing at the control console while the other five looked on. Having all six crew members in the same room was a rare occurrence, as the staggered nature of the work schedule usually ensured that at least two of them were asleep at any given time. But none of them wanted to miss this. There was a small countdown timer displayed on a nearby screen, and the crew watched with bated breath as it slowly ticked down. The countdown reached zero. The man pushed the button, the sail opened, the crew cheered and had a little celebration with some alcohol that they had fermented for the occasion a few months back. Then they went back to their assigned tasks, and the ship flew ever onward in a sea of endless night. End of story. Story number two. May your fortunes hold, written by British tea company. Battlecruiser Kongu was leading formation. She was a nameship of the Kongu-class battlecruisers, one of the favorite warships of the Sol Imperium's navy for their versatility in any operation. Kongu herself had served in many missions for over a decade, the ship and her crew having had many changes, upgrades, and awards over the past ten years. Though she was no longer the most advanced ship in the fleet, she was certainly still the most decorated. The Admiral may have threatened a court-martial, but this was going to be an honorable discharge. Battle of Kongu Shields held against the wave of alien fire, her hull buckled as her generators fumed, but she held. She was as loyal as this crew, ready to do her duty in the line of battle. Her primary guns sent another volley, scratching another alien destroyer. The rain of torpedoes which sent her shield strength down to 60% did not dissuade her or her furious charge into the armada. The chief engineer reported his work was done. The admiral, ranting and threatening, had gone to a desperate plea. The captain smiled and rubbed his locket one last time. The shot glass was emptied next to it. There was one last thing about Battlecruiser Congo that only few people still knew, though none of the other Congo classes had this problem. It was discovered after the fact that the warp core of the Kongu herself had a design floor, which could potentially cause a hazardous breach in subspace if improperly handled. Or in this case, properly handled. A well-aimed shot took the Kongu's conning tower. Her hull began to groan as though she was dying, but she continued to drive. A last array of torpedoes was sent into fines against the alien menace, The captain stared at his communications officer and gestured him to move over. He stared at the locket once more before caressing it to his heart. To the rest of the Imperium, he began as the countdown until subspace detonation began. And in the final moments, the captain thought of his father, the Admiral of the fleet. He thought about his crew, their families. He thought about his, the woman in the locket. He thought about his enemy, the thousands of ships which he had plunged straight into the midst of. May your fortunes hold, for we will be watching in Valhalla. End of story. Hails from Outer Space 1867. Story number one, A Bug Problem, written by Katani77. Kavor was three galactic standard days from leaving. military. He thumbed through some entries in his journal with his paws, pausing to stroke his worn claw across the hollow pick of his wife and three cubs. The Kirin were a proud and noble race, but they had their softer sides, not like the enemies they were chasing across this part of the galaxy. The Aranthos were a ruthless insectoid race of bioengineered technology, but they couldn't destroy. They would infect with everything, from logic plagues for the shipboard AI systems, a fancy way of saying programmed paradoxes, to actual biological warfare that would consume and dissolve all living tissues. Preventing boarding was the cable's job. Seven seconds to contact, the cold and comfortingly neutral voice of the ship's AI stated, K'Vor and his squadron of shock troopers manned the main airlocks, waiting for the telltale thud of a boarding vessel latching to the side. Be ready, man. Bio-shields at maximum. A thick smell of ozone filled the air as the personal shields energized around them, giving each trooper a faint light blue glow. Dud. The ship shuddered as the boarding pond latched onto the airlock, extending its tendrils around the side of the ship A metallic gnashing could be heard outside as the mandibles of the half-organic half-machine began chewing its way through the airlock doors. Soon, the Aranthos would begin spewing out the maw of the boarding pod's orifice. Gnash! Crunch! Gnash! Crunch! Airlock integrity field failing, the A.I. chimed in, slightly more stilted than usual. The plague, Cable thought to himself. We'll all lose AI's control of the ship. Trooper Dull, secure the shipboard AI. k looked over his shoulder to see a trooper enter the core room, and the second later, the confirmation of the AI had been deactivated. A new trick that they had learned in dealing with the Aranthos. Form up! Squad A on me! Squad B at Junction 3! The orders conveyed a confidence that K-Vol did not actually possess at that moment. The ship's automated system sounded off. Hellbridge! Emergency! Hellbridge! Far less tactful those systems eh, chieftain, one of the troopers quipped. Shut up and fire! K-War yelled, as the first of the Aranthos soldier cast poured into the hallway, covered in a red exoskeleton and the signature three white stripes of their cast. The creature stood twice the height of the Karen and had to stoop slightly at the corridor. Immediately sensing the trap, the Aranthus lifted its wings, casing, and emitted a cloud of orange glass before a laser bolt ripped its head clean off. Masks, Kavor ordered. While the bio-shields could prevent the usual bioweapons, it did nothing for the neurotoxins the soldiers could emit. The squad's armor automatically extended the breathing masks over the muzzles of the troopers as two more warriors entered the hallway, only to be ripped to shreds by the Keren rifles. Squad B, cover us! The boarders were repelled one by one as Squad A advanced to the airlock. Kara, place the charge! A smaller of the troopers, but much more agile than light armor, ran forward and threw a satchel into the mouth of the boarding pod. Seconds later, it abruptly began foaming at the throat. No! k yelled. A structural force field erected itself across the airlock, just as the boarding pod fell off dead. Captain, the boarding pod is neutralized, Kayvon said, as they began tossing parts of the Aranthos bodies through the field and into space. Good to hear, Chieftain, but we have some unidentified guests here. Get to tactical as soon as you can. This may get ugly for us. Kayvon left his troops to do the jobs and sprinted on all falls to the tactical center of the bridge. What are they? Simeon, we think, can't be sure. Very strong, though. The captain spoke as he pulled up a hollow image of a strange-looking ship entering the combat area. You only got half the boarding party visiting you because it looks like the Aranthos were already dealing with these creatures. He mentioned as the image zoomed out to show the majority of the Aranthos fleet focusing his attention on the new ship and losing badly. The ship appeared to be roughly rectangular with a long row of cargo containers and tanks trailing behind. Several gun placements were rapidly tracking and destroying Aranthos ships all around. Suddenly, the communication system lit up. Do so, sir, did you? came across the ship's comms. Engineer Gold, re-engage shipboard AI as soon as the rogue logic plague processes are cleared, the captain said. Gold ran to the core room as fast as his legs could carry him. After a few moments, AI engaged, sir, came the reply. R-69, are you online and functional? Captain asked the ship's systems. Yes, sir. Performing battlefield analysis, new species discovered, does not match any known records. Analyzing. Complete. Species calls themselves humans, and originate from a star projected to be near here, as the human's vessel does not appear to be capable of warp travel. Negotiating with human communication systems, compatible radio wave systems detected at 27.185 MHz. Sending Linguistics Codex. Human Vessel contains AI of similar capability. Negotiating. Negotiating. Success. Language Exchange added to Universal Translator Matrix. The communications was repeated in Keren. This is Deep Space Hauler Snowman of the Soul System. We see that you got a bug problem. We'll have it cleared up in a few minutes. Then maybe we can grab a beer. Snowman out. End of story. Story number two, Meeting the Neighbors, A First Contact Conversation, Communications Link Online. Humanity. Hi! We're humans, and we come from Earth. We're new to the galaxy and very excited to meet another intelligent race. Kabiski. Yes, yes, we know. You've been shamelessly broadcasting attention-seeking transmissions all across the cosmos for centuries now. Oh! Wow! So our messages were being received all along. Unfortunately. Now, um, if you'll excuse us, we're very busy. What? Wait. Don't go. We haven't even properly introduced ourselves yet. (sighs) Make it brief. Well, for a start, we'd just like to say how much of an honor it is to meet you. This is a really big moment for us and... uh, Get to the point. Oh, so, um, uh, how about we open lines of diplomacy and trade? Why the hell, would we want to trade with you. Um... We have a vibrant culture and a booming industrial complex, and I'm sure we have something of value that you guys might want. Right? You guys don't even have miniaturized dark energy reactors, do you? Uh... no? It's amazing that you primates ever made it to space. Okay, look. I know you guys probably have a lot of amazing technology and stuff, but could you not be so condescending? We're trying to be friendly here. I'd rather not be friends with the species of hairless monkeys that spends entire work days mindlessly checking the social network news feeds. Alright, uh, I guess we're not exchanging Facebook friends requests. Uh, but at the very least, can you let us observe you guys a little? We really are excited to meet you. and um, There's so much that we can learn from you. Uh, uh, please, we'll make sure to stay out of your way. Do whatever you want. Can we go now? Yeah, we promise that we won't be any trouble. He'll be like, we don't even exist. If only... Ah! What the flying flatfoot is that? What? That? That thing you sent? What the weed-eating boot hole did you send? Oh, that. Oh, it, it, it's a von Neumann probe. Hey, what? You know, a self-replicating nanomachine, it absorbs material from the surrounding environment to duplicate itself. We figured that, since you're so far ahead of us, that we'd need to learn knowledge at an exponential rate in order to catch up. A self-replicating nanomachine? Are you insane? Do you have any idea how many levels of dangerous that is? No, 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 they're perfectly safe. Uh, They've only been programmed to absorb knowledge. They should stop replicating once they have enough probes to scan all your technology. Oh, God! They're devouring our moon! Uh, they, um... Might need a little more expansion than we thought. Uh, Exactly how advanced are you guys? Sweet mother of the stars, they've eaten the entire population of Arianix. Oops. No, please, not the planet's cock. Oh, God, turn them off, turn them off! Quickly, uh... Yeah, um the off switch, uh, see, uh, the, the, the thing is, ah! hello, um, is, is everything alright? Hello, um, are you still there? Hey, if you're not all dead, could could you send us back up on Newman probes? Uh, also, we're very sorry about the inconvenience, uh, probably you should have said that first. You know what? You're probably busy, so, We'll just leave you to it. Uh, call us back if you need anything. Communications link terminated. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1868. The Shriek, written by Calamity Comet. Psychic blinds Blow. and the appraiser felt the shield slip away over the edges of his ship. He focused on the blue and green terrestrial hotels in his scopes from its sun. It was a hot one. The brazer did its breathing exercises and held the world firmly in its mind eye. He slipped the world's boundaries of the ship and leapt across the astral plane. He felt the black of space on his face. He felt the coolness of the immediate boundary layer through which all psychic energy flowed. His superiors had an interest in this blue marble. He was to probe its psychic defenses. He was to determine whether it could defend itself, and if it could not. The two men in suits parked their car. The walk into the Pentagon was a long one, and it was a hot summer. Jeffrey Bullock was sweating by the time he got inside. An aide handed him a bottled water and let him know his superiors wanted him downstairs as soon as possible. What's this about, Jeff? asked Dan. Daniel Tran was a Space Force upper brass, not predisposed to useless questions or idle panic. Bullock shrugged. Uh, it's about the Kuiper Belt object. I know that much. Civilian agencies are still classifying it as a comet, as far as I know. The object had made a course correction outside the orbit of Neptune, and looked odd, unnatural. In addition to that, ever since it entered the current orbit, certain metrics had become altered. Data flowing into the Pentagon had become unexplainably strange. Bullock worked with metadata, and he desperately hoped there was an explanation for the data his people were getting. Appraiser shook his shaggy head again. I have detected no evidence of psychic awareness, no evidence of training, no evidence of organized application of basic psychic laws. Species E appears neither aware that the psychic realm exists, nor disciplined in their own mental processes of this, I am certain his superior twisted a neck around itself in a sign of agitation. Species E is turning many of our assumptions upside down. Your report claims in the preamble that they possess a great latent psychic power, and then two screens later, you tell me what you are telling me now. How can they also have those no psychic defenses? Latent capability is not the same thing as practical experience, Abraza said. His five hands crossed his lap. Species E could not do so much as scratch our psychic shields without regimented training, not unless they have literally limitless psychic potential. Is there a danger of that? His superior asked nervously, cracking her digit. Could they have that much power? Abraza thought for a moment. It was strange. There was always a chance but it was so unlikely that it approached impossible. He shook his head. No, I recommend we continue psychic bombardment. They will crack shortly, and then they will welcome our armies with smiles. The room was straight out of Dr. Strangelove. Beige walls, leather chairs, a map of the world with overlaid strategic options. Bullock looked around. The room was packed. Experts from two dozen fields jockeyed for space around the table. Most... And to stand. Bullock had gathered three things from the introduction. One, object KBO-2022 was not natural. Satellite time had confirmed it was a ship. Two, the recent spike in suicides, discontentment, crime, and public complaints that had escalated through July was connected to some kind of signal the object was broadcasting in a way that could not be accurately measured. Three, the lobby snack machine was out of pretzels. Please ask the staff, then they'll get you something as soon as the next shipment comes in. A short man in a blazer cleared his throat. Everyone looked at the man and stood up. My name is Terry Cantrell. I work with psychics. After the laughter had died down, he stayed standing. While many of you may find my field amusing, the government does not. And after today I assure you that... You will all change your minds. Terry then went on a blitz of a PowerPoint. M.K. Ultra, M.K. Often, the Montauk Project, the Edgewood Arsenal, Pleasant Prairie. It was all real, and Terry had been there. People around the table looked nervously at the politicians in attendance, but they simply nodded along. As scientists sunk deeper into the chairs, a chemist coughed. "'Are we sure any of this sort of science stuff is legit? "'Nobody so much as laughed.' "'Terry continued. "'He went into the effects of psychological bombardment. "'He went into the child brain-reading experiments at Pleasant Prairie. "'He described a recent spike connected to the Kiefer Belt object "'as consistent with what they would expect from a psychic attack. "'And then he reached the end of the slide titled, "'Countermeasures.' "'It was blank.' Our experiments during the 70s and 80s were shot down for a reason. We developed a whole lot of theory, but not a lot of practical experience. We can tell you what the astral plane looks like, conceptually, but hell if we could actually go there. We can tell you what the psychic warfare would look like, Terry said, gesturing towards the radio image of the KBO spacecraft. But we didn't have the experimental ability to test it. Until now. A woman near the edge of the table pointed at Terry. So all that bad psychic juju we were beaming at the Soviet Union didn't do shit. Now the room laughed. A Russian agent who was attending as a guest crossed his arms and didn't say anything. Terry shook said, head. Humans seem tremendously powerful at sending those kinds of signals. But we're no good at receiving them. We need both sides of the coin to develop these conceptual abilities. Those messages we sent the USSR, which were real, by the way, likely contributed zilch to their collapse. He nodded at the Russian agent. No offense. As the meeting adjourned, Terry motioned towards Bollock to follow him. Then as a group of a few others diverged from the main group in the lobby and went down an elevator, 80 stories down. Terry looked at Bullock. You work with metadata? Bullock nodded stiffly. Good boy. Do I have some slides for you? Appraiser was going crazy with boredom. Five standard cycles of psychic bombardment had come and gone. Target species E was exhibiting only the most minor of effects. Rates of crime and suicide crept up, with incredible slowness. The brazier snorted. He was a professional. This was weapons-grade psychic power. Why was species E barely affected? How could a species with that much latent power be so damn bad at feeling the effects? Unless... The human experts crowded around a table in one of the Pentagon's secret observation rooms. A woman named Marlene was led in. She shook all of their hands, but she seemed like she was in a confused daze. This is marty She works at a social media company, Terry said, gesturing at the others. I'm not allowed to release the details per her lawyer's orders. I think introductions are in order. As they all broke into small talk, Terry directed some lab techs setting up equipment in the other room. Tables, stands and a lot of expensive-looking equipment that Bullock knew nothing about took shape in the other room. It was all behind a two-way mirror, set currently to function as a simple window. Despite his ignorance as to the details, Bullock gathered what was going on. They were going to try and contact the ship with a psychic response of some kind. Around that time, Terry cleared his throat. We in the government don't have a ton of options right now. We're being contacted by extraterrestrials in a medium we barely understand. Based on the effects of the messages, they here are hostile. He let the word sink in. We have decided to try and send a return message using equipment developed in the 80s. It's not foolproof. Most of our death subjects are long since deceased. Marlene here is a willing volunteer. Marlene swallowed, but detected the tension in the room, she then smiled and gave a thumbs up. Hi, everybody, she said awkwardly. I've been told by the government I may possess the appropriate skills, so here I am. Moloch looked at Terry. "There, those appropriate skills are? I'm glad you asked, Jeff. He opened the door to the other room. Marlene, could you take a seat? I think it is time we begin. Appraiser urgently hailed his superiors. He demanded they raise the psychic shields to maximum power. He told them his theory. He believed that the resistance that they encountered from species C e was another symptom of their obliviousness to the psychic world. Their latent power was not just impressive, it must be off the charts. Due to their poor receptivity, they had to force everything through a psychic realm with incredible power just to get the smallest of emotional responses from their own kind. Perhaps their own inability to feel psychic energy had developed as an evolutionary response to protect them from their own psychic power. Whatever the reason was, it was bad news. It meant that they knew about the psychic realm and tried to send a message out into space. I want you to take three deep breaths, Marlene. Four seconds in. Hold for seven. Breathe out for eight. While Terry walked Marlene through the preliminary steps, the technicians explained the machinery to Bollock. This is the psychically enabled brain-to-computer intermediate boundary layer ensemble, the technician told him, as if the words made any sense. Marlene thinks into this, he gestured to the EKG tabs, and the signal goes up and out the pentagon roof into space from here. He gestured at the machinery. We used these a lot in the 80s, and don't listen to Terry. They absolutely did contribute to the Soviet collapse. Terry sheepishly grinned. Maybe a little, he said, making a gesture with his forefinger and thumb. We used a lot of power in those experiments, but we'll be using only a fraction of that for this test. Bollock felt his stomach not up. Bollock watched Marlene as she was finishing up the breathing exercises. I still never got an answer. Why have they picked you to send out the first message? Marlene took a final deep breath. I uh, work for Facebook. The lawyer shook her head. I worked for an unspecified social media company. I was a content management analyst. And that means what exactly? Mars-baller, shaking his said. I browsed the site, checking reported posts and comments to determine if they violated our standards. I saw a lot of crazy stuff. Cartel killing, smut films, all sorts of sexual stuff. The brick video, y- you name it. Nice thought. Worse than you can guess. Terry shook his head. And you are barely compensated. Sad state of affairs. But now we can use those memories for something productive. The aliens are hell-bent on sending us hostile psychic energy. Fine. Let's send a little back. He motioned towards Marlene to begin when ready. The technician escorted Bullock and the others out of the room. Terry poked Bullock. "'I hope you're writing this down,' he said, gesturing at the monitors. "'Do we think this'll have any effect?' Bullock asked Terry, as the machinery powered up. "'No,' Terry said bluntly. "'There is no reason. An alien race that's developed psychic warfare.' wouldn't be able to defend against one that hasn't. It's not like our latent powers are that high, right? This will barely scratch the paint on their mental shield. It's just to let them know that we know what's up. A technician spoke up over the intercom. When you're ready, Marlene, please recall the video or image that caused you distress during your past employment. Visualize it in your mind. On command, I want you to hold it on the top of your head. Take a deep breath and focus it at the EKG tabs on your scalp. Feel it pass into the machinery. Feel it exiting the room. Let it go. Let your discretion, please, begin. When the shriek hit the fleet, the brazer barely had time to feel the psychic shields collapse under the strain. It was instant. They had diverted power from weapons and engines, they diverted it from non-essential functions. Administrative AI focused everything on a psychic shield. Throngs of psychics demanded with their minds that the shields hold. The shriek had emanated from a blue-green world that hung in space. That blasted species E had sent it. Appraiser had warned of the possibility. His superiors had taken precautions. It wasn't enough. The shriek roiled through the immediate boundary layer, traversing far faster than light. It practically boiled up through the mentalist shields. It melted minds. Every alien it killed became fuel for it to amplify its own signal. It became memetic, aware of its own existence. The most dangerous kind of psychic weapon. Alarm spread. The astral plane went black. The energy jammed violently at his third eye. Appraiser screamed. He held out his arms. He fought it tooth and claw. He opposed it with all of his might. It was not stopped for even a second, as it ate his mind up too. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1869 Story number one. Hero of Antelope's Run. In the corner of a bar sat a young man, harrowed beyond his years and with eyes that had seen terrible things, out there in the depths of space. He drank, slept, and ate for free. If anyone asked the barman why they'd get told, he was the hero of Antelope's Run. If anyone asked the man in person, well, they got another story entirely. Tonight was one of those nights. A young vulcrum asked him just why he was called that. I'm not a hero. Here, let me tell you why. Now, when I was younger, I wanted to join the Navy. Except they didn't really care to hire me. So I ended up washed out up in a bar. Kind of like this one. On that night, the bar was empty, but for me. And two other regulars. Oh, and the barman. So those two regulars, Captain Jeb, owned an old tramprator. Half dead it was. Save as him. Never left the station. Then there was Molly. Cracked pilot once. Then ended up getting hooked on Regalis. The man paused and looked at his drink. So there we were. Then everything went to hell. Entire station shook and groaned. Then we red alert went off. Unholy noise it was. Only thing worse was the silence after. Lights went out. Pretty sure that was life support went too. We'd all be dead except for Captain Jeb started yelling. The man paused to put on a slight accent, trying to impersonate a man long since gone. Stow to the bridge! Head for the antelope now! The accent was struck. If he'd not been yelling well, told us the station reactor was going to explode. So him, Molly and me ran for the docks. We got there, and there were more people than I'd ever seen in the bar. Jeb didn't miss a beat. "'told them to get the void suits and get in the hold. It was going to be cold, bumpy, and airless, "'but it was better than sitting on a station waiting for it to explode.' "'The man stopped again to take a drink. "'He'd now acquired a small audience, several of the Vulcrum, "'and a few other species, "'and even a few of the larger races had pulled over, barstools to listen. "'Well, then what?' one of the crowd asked. "'Well, then, Jeb asked Molly, can you navigate?' and asked him who was needed for the crew. Now old Jeb said that it was just three that we needed. The captain, Molly, and me, made me prouder than I'd ever been. We got her away just as the station went up. The old captain fired the main engines to get us away in time. Now that kind of force put some strain on you, and the captain lost a long war with his heart with that. We came to and uh, we knew he'd not wake. Another pause, and the crowd looked at each other. Dying straights indeed. So Molly took the helm and, and the nav, and I took the carbon engineer board. Molly worked like a lunatic. Never seen anything like it. Jumped us three times, shaking like a leaf and going through DT. The man shook his head forlornly. Almost the entire bar was listening. Several had ordered new drinks for the speaker. She'd have been nothing short of a miracle that her day. So three jumps down, just one more left. Then the ship's alarms went off, the seals giving out after all the abuse, losing air fast. Well, the bridge only had one suit left. Well, luck is impartial. So I started a task of heads and tails, didn't finish it. Molly knocked me out, came to, was in the suit and Molly was strapped down, hands on the console, smiling like a lunatic, ice on her face and in her hair. Instructions on screen on how to get home, and a message for old shipmates, telling them that she died clean. So, my did as I was told, made the jump like she said, everyone calling me a hero. Wasn't me, I just did what I was told. When they tell you of the hero of Antelope's run, you tell them the real heroes were Molly and Jeb. The man finished his story, and the bar was silent for a while. Unsure of how to respond, eventually the man finished his drink and stood. Someone called out. So what's your name then? The man laughed. Doesn't matter, was all he said as the door swung shut behind him. End of story. Story number two. A Sliver of Humanity, written by British Tea Company. There are many names for the creatures. That invaded our galaxies The Shadows For their black forms That came in from the stars The World Eaters For their habit of stripping Every planet of its resources Some call them demons Devils For their bloodthirstiness And willingness to slaughter All those who get in their way In recent times We've called them the soulless ones For under those opaque screens We do not see their eyes And we cannot look into their soul The Faceless or the Masked are also popular names. Every attempt at communication has failed. Every attempt at contact has failed. We know not of the enemy, but the roars of their weapons as they descend upon our cities and the incomprehensible chatter across their channels. Many have attributed them to be the closest form to pure evil and life-form can possibly achieve. Indeed. Through the countless worlds, they have rendered lifeless. It is easy to see why that is. But can a race of pure evil exist in the vast universe? Is it possible for a society of something such as themselves to truly enter existence completely devoid of compassion, love, and filled with nothing but hatred possible? We thought not, and I have bright news. For it is not possible. The battle for Kovu City has taught us differently. Originally, we had many theories on the faceless. Through the recovered corpses of their soldiers, we see the heavy genetic tampering exists amongst their warriors. They wish to be stronger, faster, better. Perhaps a sign at once that their race was physically weak requiring only mastery of knowledge and the sciences to survive on their world. That is a tangent that could be explored, but I only want to talk about the Faceless's aim on morality. Recall the footage of Kovu City and see that loop. Look closely. The Faceless soldier, designated as a Praetorian by our military strategists, is a gigantic specimen. Heavy genetic engineering has made them colossal in relation to most members of their kind, and we see them commonly used to devastate our lines with weapons that belong more on tanks than in the hands of a soldier. But it is one in particular I want to draw attention to. Let me slow down this footage. Watch as the detonation locks the faceless down to the ground. Watch as the Praetorian breaks cover to aid his kin. That is not a weapon he's deployed. That's an energy shield that belongs on a vehicle, not in the gauntlet of a soldier. Does this footage prove something about the Faceless? It surely does. Answer me this. For all the evil we attribute to their kind, why would one of them willingly leave the safety of cover to help an injured member of this race? To perform what any could hear could consider a selfless act. It requires compassion rather than fiendish bravery. It was brotherhood and kinship that motivated that act, not the typical bloodthirstiness and warmongering acts which we would dilute the Faceless to. And, at the end of the day, they have faces, they have souls. Look at the way the injured soldier and his helmet removed by the Praetorian. Look at the way the Faceless in White runs over and kneels down, Accompanied by what is clearly bodyguards. Look. As how the Praetorian shields begin to fail. The Faceless in white continues to work diligently. his injured squad mate. If they have kinship between themselves, then our theories that they have a hive mind or genetically weapons simply cannot be true. From what we've discovered so far, the Faceless have a name for themselves. And... I would like to see more than just a slight sliver of what it means to be Terran. End of story. Story number three. Another Sliver of Humanity. Written by British Tea Company. The Faceless never removed their helmets willingly. At least, that's what was known currently. From what a reconnaissance team is transmitting now, however... That clearly was no longer the case. There was a pair of faces a few hundred meters away, walking alone in the ruins of the city. The first one was a giant among its kind, wearing the notorious Praetorian armor. The other was Sean and Lee. Both wore the opaque face shields that gave them faceless their name. The reconnaissance team sent their footage. If there was any functioning form of recording, they had hoped it was. Antares was a large man even before the countless enhancements he subjected himself throughout the years. The slash below his cheek had done little to warn his appearance of being a warrior. Mere presence alone was enough to quell all, but the boldest as far as the Emperor of the Terran Empire was concerned. If it wasn't for the fact that the Emperor enjoyed toying with the pistol that never left his side, it was perhaps, at this moment, he was wearing enough armor to make most tank crews green with envy. And the Prethora of ordnance he was carrying, right now, looked like it belonged more in artillery corps than on a single man. If Emperor Antares, however, had the capacity to make another man tremble throughout mere presence, it was his companion who would make any being go down to his knees with a flick of her finger. Crown Princess Andromeda at one point had her father's eyes but brown pupils were now a piercing purple. Her hair, once brown like both parents, was bleached of all colors, leaving it a ghostly white. Perhaps if it wasn't for the fact Andromeda never smiled, or the ambient creep of dread upon any living being's psyche, she would be considered precious to many. Only one person truly valued her companionship, even if it meant to be in occasional bouts of physical pain. This is the spot, the Emperor began as he tossed his helmet down and knelt down on the area. His offspring looked at it with longing eyes as she stood on her toes to be able to rest herself against his shoulder. Terran bombardments had almost pounded this area into a flat wasteland, yet the spot remained. Perhaps as a reminder to the royal family what had been taken from them. It's when my mother died. Andromeda began. Her frown cut a bit deeper than usual, as she knelt down at it. Yes, I feel it. Pain. Sorrow. Betrayal. Loss. Despair. She felt it here at the moment of her death, just like we both felt it when we heard the news. Nantaris twitched a little. They stood up and sighed. They asked me why I come to this galaxy, to grind these aliens to dust. They ask me why I bring the hammer of terror down upon them. This is why, my wife, your mother, nothing more than a peaceful visitor to a foreign galaxy, murdered like some kind of criminal in Tlover. Such! Such! It was at a loss of words. Enough so that Andromeda raised a finger. Just enough to bring a minor amount of solace into his head. Father... Andromeda asked after knowing her father was placated. Can you make me a promise? What is it? Promise me that you will not leave like Mother did. Antares ever knelt to four people in his lifetime. His father, his mother, his wife, and now his child. I promise. Pain, loss, sorrow, anger. We know all too well now that the Faceless are just like us. They are not souls. They are not demons. They act after vengeance because they believe that they were wronged. We see a sliver again of what it's like to be a terror. To succumb to the emotions is natural for any creature. And it is in this that we should also see ourselves. It is time that we heal old wounds. Peace must be restored. End of story. Tales from Outer Space, 1870, Collective, written by underscore sky underscore underscore. Carol knew his information would shock the Galactic Assembly, but it was his duty to report his findings about this new species. But how he would do would determine a lot about their future nation. There is no doubt in my uh, main processing unit that Terrans are the most peaceful civilization in the galaxy but I do understand there are those who still find it hard to believe and consider the term peaceful civilization to be an oxymoron. Many individuals present in the crowd nodded with their head, but a majority stood still. After all, every civilization is forged through conflict and warfare without exception. Admittedly, mankind has its share of wars, but only minor skirmishes. We are still in the process of the First Contact Protocol. But their history data, backed by data collected by our scout drones, indicated the validity of their claims. Now almost everyone in the audience looked surprised. It was not unusual for some new species to try and sell the story of being peaceful in order to have an element of surprise on their potential future opponents. Like nobody had tried that strategy before. Yes, my fellow sapien, it is true that you have heard about the Terran's homeworld. Not a single significant nuclear-scale war ever erupted there. Now gasps of surprise could be heard from the few aliens, which were until then most vigorous skeptics in this whole peaceful civilization nonsense. Stealthily, one tall individual rose, a prominent general in his own species, his body genetically upgraded to perfection by himself, his mind dampened with the sole purpose of tactical, strategic reasoning. I
1: refuse
0: to believe such nonsense. It is obvious we are dealing with a ruse. Your senses have been deceived slash hacked, and the data corrupted. Commotion rushed through the assembled audience, sound of their voices rising, and many of them could not do anything but agree. The Kara held his calm. Respectful General, his voice now strong, as that was the only way to communicate with such a person. I do understand your view on this matter. And if you have any doubts about collected data, I implore you to double check it yourself. I most certainly will, and my race will fully prepare for the incoming war. As it is obvious these Terrans are planning to take us by surprise. And with those words, the General left the ascent. Few others followed, but Korra continued with his presentation nonetheless. Now I wish to talk more about the Terran history. But what will surprise you even more is that they ever had only two planetary wars, or, as they call them, the World Wars. Truly unbelievable when you take into account that on average every spacefaring species needs at least average 33 of those conflicts to move on to the space warfare. Following those words, one of the prominent military historians rose up. He was an even more respected figure, as he only specialized into the history of wars he personally participated at. What made him historical expert in around 42 comments. Excuse me, if you may, sir, but what is the reason for such deviation from the norm? After all, my own species held the title of least amount of world balls until space age, and we had 17 of them. Thus, I conclude there must have been some distinct geographical features to facilitate severe lack of world balls. Again many in the assembly nodded with their head. There were the cases of species which only had one medium-sized continent on their planet or some empire was able to come on top early in their history. However such empires faced with no external threat would always stagnate until they collapsed into the number of lesser states which would then eventually engage in warfare. But it was theorized that there existed a chance of such empire lasting well into the space age. Yes, I see most of you were rushed here and probably had no time to go over the specific data regarding their homeworld. To continue, Kara activated the hologram in front of the assembly, which showed them the perfect representation of Earth. Now, as you see, there are no specific geographical features which prohibited all the scourge of World War. The planet is filled with regular-sized continents, and thus... But before he could finish his words, the respectful historian interrupted him. This can't be. For reason's sake, just look at that continent there, riddled with pronunciates. It is like geographical quagmire created to agitate war and conflict. Garan didn't even have to look to know which of the continents the historian was referring to. Yes, respected member of the assembly, the continent you pointed to is called Europe and has been the source of both world wars for their species experienced. For a few moments, everything was quiet. Nobody knew what to say. Then suddenly, Ridiculous! You insult my profession and my honor. To claim there is a sapient species which could not be forced into constant warfare in this geographical nightmare of a planet. Just look at it. I do understand your disbelief, but it is true. I was surprised as anyone else. However, facts are facts and data is data. The historian then did the same as the general. But before walking out, he tossed a few violent complaints about lunatic who made him travel a few thousand light years for nothing. Supposedly, he wanted to see in person this historic event, only to find himself listening to a mentally ill individual. So Kara went on. After all, he expected there would be incidents like this. So now when we rushed over the geological landscape upon which Terran civilization developed, I wished to go over their biology. This time nobody interrupted for a long time, as he went in details about their genetic makeup, internal structure and aspects of their main processing unit, which obviously had an extreme effect on their psychology. He even got a few applause from a couple of high mind representatives slash drones. Then he went over their immune system, tissue composition, and specific environmental adaptation. The assembly found it interesting as terrans were actually the first sapient species which possess sweating type of heat dispersal system. A few biologists eventually went into serious questioning about sweat delivery system, its capacity, etc. Finally, as Kara was about to finish, one of the biologists rose up to ask an additional question. He asked a respectful member of the assembly, there is something you would wish to ask? Well, yes. He nodded with his head. He actually had a head. You he went into extreme details regarding the biology functioning of the drones, and they seem to be extremely autonomous. They even reproduce amongst themselves. Truly amazing. Sounds of agreement could be heard from almost every biologist and hive mind representative drone in the room. The biologist continued. So is that how their queen manages to control billions of them with ease? As her body doesn't have to spend any energy on building up the population. Instead, it can focus solely on the aspects of ruling the hive? This question caught Karan off guard. even confused him for a bit. Excuse me, respected biologist. Karan spoke steadily. But what specifically are you talking about? His response was quick and fluent. Well, isn't it obvious? Most of the hive minds have a critical population, and upon breaching it they often separate into two or more groups. What in turn leads to a conflict and warfare. But here you've presented a hive mind species whose biology somewhat bypassed the problem by outsourcing the reproduction to its drones. This has been theorized by many biologists as plausible, but unlikely. Thus we are extremely excited to learn more about their control and communication system. Only now, Kara figured out the obvious misconceptions others got about humans. But he did not want the situation to escalate as the two others before that, so he tried to be polite. Well, uh, the matter of fact is uh, they do not actually have a centralized governing structure in the form of a queen or any other biological organism. They are quite decentralized. Instantly, a commotion and whispers started floating around the assembly, everybody present looking completely stunned. But the respected biologist continued speaking. You mean to say they have a decentralized hive mind? Biological one at that. We only ever thought it possible with synthetic organisms. This, this is marvelous. Kara face slapped himself as he very well knew how hive minds thought flash work. Every species which evolved as a hive mind, always without exception, had a problem with rebellious isolated drones. And different queens fighting each other was a norm with evolution always favoring the queen, which either had better or more numerous army. But biology had its limits, even when given billions of years to move forward. Respected biologist, Gara went on, as you say, humans are a marvelous species, but I am not sure they would even qualify as a hive mind, because they do not have queens, and their uh, drones are highly autonomous, though they do seem to possess an extraordinary case of collective intelligence. He hoped to steer the topic onto a more friendly ground for the hive minds, and adopted his line of talk accordingly. Like some hive minds, Terrans have a considerable information lag, but far more substantial than any known hive mind. Regardless, they overcome covered with high autonomy of their drones, which can build up a large amount of knowledge and experience into their main processing unit. All right, spoke the biologist, but how do they exchange you? Some form of electromagnetic waves, bioluminescence, or well actually, Terrans used verbal conversation and only minor gestures to communicate in between regardless of the topic. radio waves only came in after they discovered electricity, etc. verbal conversation ah oh. the biologist and the high mind representatives drones were as confused and as surprised as again. Their own respective species all had far faster ways to communicate between biological individuals. It wasn't like they never used sound, but it was always a second or third method of communication, never the first. It is true they work, exchange information, and solve problems together using only signals transmitted by sound. Some internal discussion escalated between the few hive minds, debate, and arguments about functionality of such biologicals, their advantages, and flaws. At first, they all agreed it was certainly a military advantage not to worry about losing a queen. But the tactical performance of the troops, which were not directed in unison, certainly lowered quality of their soldiers fleets. Still, the biologist voiced over the others and continued, how were they able to avoid so many of the world wars and never attack each other with nuclear weapons? From when I was able to gather, their leaders were always afraid that it would cause a mutual self-destruction, and thus avoided it. Kara answered, oh, leaders? They do not have queens, but do have individual leaders. Though you say they are not hive-minded at all, or due to them being so decentralized, there are individual drones, leaders, which act as control nodes for their unified sentience. Hmm, you could say so. But, at the moment, I would put Terran somewhere between the Lucent hive mind and individualistic species. What followed next was not expected. The same respected biologist, which was eager to speak, suddenly broke out into laughter. (laughs) Oh, sir, your sense of humor is extreme. I almost fell for your joke. First you say they are a peaceful civilization then they are individualist with collective intelligence. (laughs) Any more oxymoron you can throw at us. Now it's true. When it comes to Terrans, they are able to work together, in thousands upon thousands of them, to solve the problems of the individual. And while other individualistic species focus solely on the extreme intellect and exceptional individuals, mankind instead tends to work together. Individualistic species were famous slash notorious amongst the hive minds for their exceptional drones, some of which rivaled the intellect of the queens. But they always lacked team and collective reasoning to get most of their main processing unit. Please do not waste our time on this nonsense, the biologist spoke. Individualistic species are dependent on extremely intelligent individuals who accomplish great things. Far above the capabilities of main processing unit the humans have. Yes, they are far smarter than any droid. But compared to you and me, their mental capabilities are wanting to say the least. Now he understood why many of them first thought humans were a high-fine species. Immediately after he went over the biology, after all, their main processing units were barely fit the size of the galactic norm are not very complex or efficient when it comes to advanced biological processing algorithms. The only thing they had going for them was the dismal energy requirements individual Terran main processing units required. I know Terrans do seem too alien, too unrealistic to most, but they do exist, and for our first contact with them is of extreme importance. Yes, they are not individually intelligent to technically be considered sapient, certainly not when compared to me or any other member of the individualistic species, where only minimal communication is required for transfer of extremely complex ideas, and where a single person can basically come up with everything it needs, learn every skill it deemed necessary on a whim. But our main processing unit is so fine-tuned by a relentless evolution of intelligence that we got too accustomed to those abilities, and I say that we can learn a lot from the Terrans. What could we possibly learn from, as you admit? Mentally handicapped species. Biologist erupted. His own species, after all, was one of the most intelligent individualistic organisms in the galaxy. Kara could not be interrupted. He continued his speech. Imagine if our individualistic species could work together as them, to have our own research teams and joint research organizations. Imagine... What we could do with our large main processing units if creatures so mentally handicapped, like the Terrans, could form a space-faring civilization. Then, imagine what we could do, their main processing unit weighs only around 1.5 kilogram of organic matter. They can't even do quantum equations in their head, but have built the quantum computers anyway. (laughs) Burr, the biologist erupted. You talk nonsense! How can any individual construct a quantum computer without being able to solve quantum equations? They are clearly a hive mind. The entire assembly erupted. Discussion heated. Biologists started debating each other, the hive minds joining in to recheck the data provided by Kara. But you don't see. It all makes sense. Every species we know in our galaxy evolved through ruthless warfare and poaching of inferiors. ''Humans simply never had that happen in any significant scale. ''They moved towards technology far before acquiring intelligence we usually see necessary for it.'' He then pointed at the biologist. ''Look at yourself. Your own species evolved as super apex predators on your planet, even before you knew fire. ''Both your brain and body developed so you could hunt by yourself, not in a pack. ''It was not so for the humans.'' The biologist countered ''Well, of course.'' That is how intelligence rises at individualistic species. Once the single super predator appears, able to pursue and outsmart any prey in its biosphere, thus having plenty of energy to power its large brain, also choose slash mate more phoenix Quickly, they end up fighting and outwitting each other. Evolution quickly does the rest. Any animals which hunt in packs have to share its prey. Plus, they are always there to help each other. Thus evolution is not so strict. Even weak and less intelligence have had a chance to reproduce and survive in such an environment. Not really a catalyst for development of intelligence. Following those words, the entire assembly rose up and started to applaud in their own specific way. But Terrans do exist. They are here. I have data. They are real. And I have discovered them. Few of the hive minds already confirmed with these data was correct, and somewhat stood by Carol, but not overly eager to agree with him on his conclusions. The biologist then replied to all of them, It is clear the Terrans are too lacking in individual intelligence to be considered an individualistic species. Their drones might be highly autonomous, their governing structure decentralized, but I conclude they are still a hive. True, they are unusual, far out of the norm, but hive mind, nonetheless. That is simply not true, the rest bug. They are individualistic, but just communicate between themselves a lot, share massive amounts of information and such. Just like hive minds do. What was my point in the first place? The biologist pushed his theory. Well, your species communicates too, is it not? For mating purposes, diplomacy with other species, etc. But not closely to the extent that Terrans do. Data you provided on average communication rate and bandwidth of individual humans more than fits the norm for drones. Without hesitation, the present hive minds agreed in unison. To them, too, Terrans seem far more a hive mind than anything else. One of them stating that even the Currer himself said that human drones have the type of collective intelligence. Well, yes, they work together far more than other individualistic species. "'Cause they have to. They do not have 13 kilogram heavy main processing unit, nor do they live for 513 years, so they have to rely on each other far more.' "'Just like us hive minds,' a few of the drones spoke in unison. "'Obviously,' the biologist rushed in with his opinion. "'Thus I'll put forward the suggestion that we officially classify them as a hive mind species.' and leave it to the hive minds to deal with one of their own we already fight too much against each other the last thing we need is a war between individualistic species and hive minds hold you to one confused collective intelligence which is not aware of what it is we agree the drones again spoke in unison And that is basically how the well-known Terran Collector got classified as a hive mind by every other species in the galaxy, except by themselves. Many saw it as the first recorded case of a bipolar hive mind which has serious identity problems. But the facts are the facts, and data is data. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1871. Story number one. Uplifting the human, written by something touches Back. Ambassador Franklin studied his own gloss a bit before answering. They are giving us quite a data dump, not just technology, but also galactic politics, a little bit of biology and history of the major member species, and recently they've started introducing us as a sort of non-sentient curiosities that we'll run into out there. All in all, they seem to be doing everything in their power to uplift us as fast as possible, to the point where we can participate actively in the galactic community. But, said President Armand, your words sound good, but your tone and body language say that you are worried. I can't put my finger on it, but my counterpart amongst the Gessel, Ambassador Skizrik, seems, I don't know, concerned. It's like every time he gives us something new when we talk about it later, he seems uh, surprised at what we did with it. I feel like we are flailing some kind of test or something. But he keeps coming back with more? Yes. Perhaps then we aren't failing his test so much as subverting it. What do you mean? President Armand sipped his drink and then sat back a bit. Let me tell you about a cat my family used to have. Snuggles was born a barn cat, but soon enough adapted to indoor-slash-outdoor life of our suburban neighborhood. He was affectionate, well-behaved, and an absolute terror to the local rodent population. But one night, when he was about six or seven years old, Snuggles jumped up on our dining table before we had a chance to clear the dinner dishes away. He had never jumped up on the table before, and I wanted to stop that behavior immediately. So I dashed over to the table, scooped him up, and tossed him out onto the porch in the pouring rain. However, the next night he jumped up onto the table again. So again, I tossed him out into the wet and cold. This went on for a week. By the end of the week, the cat had learned, and for the rest of his life, whenever he wanted to go outside, he would jump up on the dining room table and stare at me. Ambassador Franklin chuckled. (laughs) Good story. But how does it apply? Ambassador Skizrik. Maybe trying to teach us something with these gifts, and maybe what we are learning isn't what he is standing to teach us. From Ambassador Skrysic, Earth Posting, Liaisons to Humans. To Director Thust, Department of New Species Integrations. I regret to inform you that uplifting the humans continues to be a confounding and is veering off plan in unexpected directions. Rather than trying to explain in general terms, allow me to present two examples from which you can draw your conclusions. Example 1. Several rotations of the planet ago, we introduced them to doubts, those prolific and vivacious pests that thrive in the small recesses of spacecraft and have doomed many with their destructive chewing of vital systems. We provided the humans with a small breeding population with the hope that they would understand the threat and devise ingenious methodologies with dealing with the infestation of doubts. Today, the human ambassador Franklin thanked me profusely for providing them with such a wonderful renewable food source for long space missions and assured me that they taste like a human food source called chicken. I recommend that we send out a bulletin making all planets and stations aware that any visiting human spacecraft will probably have a considerable population of doubts on board and should follow necessary containment procedures. Example 2. As per protocol, we presented the humans with designs for the more commonly used FTL field generators, along with their benefits and issues. This included a Type A Arknoth generator, with the explanation that, while the design is simple and inexpensive to construct, it should never be attempted due to its inherent instability and propensity to blow up with enough energy to break apart an asteroid. I should have not been surprised when the first thing the humans did was develop a Type-A Agnot generator into an effective asteroid mining tool. They seem to be completely unaware of the difference between a warning and a suggestion. Any advice is appreciated, but I must warn you in advance will probably prove futile. Humans just think differently. End of story. Story number two. False contact written by Provisional Rebel. The says were the first to discover humans. They were a primitive people on a cold, desolate world that should not have been able to support them. It was only after some observation that it was discovered that the caves they'd returned to were actually some form of ship which was trapped beneath the ice and snow. Scans indicated it was massive, but even with the interference of the ice around, it was obviously both underpowered and dying with energy readings declining at a slower but predictable rate. Almost a year to a day after their discovery, a subspace transmission was detected from the planet. It read simply, R at Estra Pegasus. After this, no further activity was detected. Research teams discovered the bodies of the last survivors huddled together in the reactor room, having apparently committed suicide together, in the last place of warmth enough to breathe without equipment. Of course, further studies determined the ship had been designed as a sleeper colony, a sublight vessel. This posed a number of issues. First, was there were no planets within a reasonable distance they could have made such a journey from. Second, they obviously had subspace technology, which indicates they must have some understanding of FTL travel. Still, With their deaths, it was a mere curiosity for the Raxxeth scientists to ponder as one of the crew's final acts had apparently been to destroy the computer core. Then, humans were discovered for the second time by the Atrai. At least, the shattered hulk of a ship was having apparently crashed during a deceleration maneuver. They saw little use in investigating the site but gave permission for the Raxith scientists to set up a research facility to compare it to the previously discovered colony ship. When the computer call was discovered, it was determined that an attempt to restore and glean information was prudent. Once power had been restored in this attempt, however, a subspace transmitter activated. Power had been lost before it was able to make a final call, which had somehow remained undisturbed in its buffers. It read at Astra Shenlong, no useful data was available as computer seemingly disabled itself upon transmission of the message. The third time the humans had been discovered was the first true contact situation. The Malik were expanding into a new sector, conquering planets as necessary. When they entered a system that was bristling with activity, they demanded their immediate surrender of the system and were met with a dazzling display of firepower from the native defense fleet. The ensuing action was a decisive defeat for the Malik's navy, and the first shots of war which would take 13 standard years to come to a close. The humans were outmanned in almost every engagement, but never outgunned. Still, it was a losing proposition for them. The Malik had a massive industrial base which they used as a blunt tool to match the surgical precision by which the humans had fought. The humans could win every engagement and still lose in the end, as they never seemed able to replace their losses nearly as fast as was necessary to stem the tide. Finally, the humans had been beaten back to their homeworld, and the end had come. They had offered peace throughout the war, but the Malak were too enraged to hear them out. The humans were a clear and present threat to their empire, and could not be allowed to survive. But once the Malek had entered that system, there was no more talk of peace. The humans deployed a horrific weapon that had yet to be seen, which devastated their enemies. But it all seemed to have been a final measure taken too late. The final three years of the war occurred exclusively within their home system. At the end, the humans sent out a subspace transmission, a final cry into the dark. It would have been pitiful whimper to mark the dying of a race echoing forever into the universe, but it was noted as different from the previous calls the humans had marked their deaths with. It read Bellum Unicorn, Unicorn, us." This was followed by some form of encrypted data packet that is yet to be decoded. Now ships have arrived in the Raxath space, appearing with cataclysmic thunderclap of energy. They claim that they are the United Earth Navy, Responding to a transmission from a lost colony ship. End of story. Tales from Outer Space, 1872. The Last Stand of the Ninth. Written by Chicken Vet. All right, people. Talk to me. What have we got? We're, uh, not sure, sir. So. But it's bad, Barry. we we're, we're lost contact with my Systems in the last month. No traffic in or out. We send scouting sorties, naturally, but they never reported after jumping in. The Ceph are reporting similar incidents, and nothing is coming out of the Voran recovery zone either. Any word from the Assembly? No agents and contacts haven't said anything. What about the Ceph's channels? We have few resources, higher places than yours. Officially, there's nothing but unofficially. Member nations across the galaxy are reporting systems going dark. Fleets are being redeployed to the room. The assembly's keeping a lid on it. As your saying goes, they don't want to cause a mass panic, whatever this is. It's a pan-galactic problem. And then there's what happened yesterday, Colonel. Right. Yes, sir. Nineteen hours ago, Terran Standard, Third Fleet's second battle group, engaged a large force of unknown composition. So far, only a couple badly damaged stealth frigates have limped home. Frankly, I'm amazed they made more than two jumps, the ship they're in. But that's not the worrying part. They recorded the battle. Yeah. Holy shit. Jesus Mary, Joseph! By the fates! motherfucker! God help those poor bastards! This is verified? Yes, sir. But there have been developments. Five hours ago, the fleet reported contact with a large fleet of completely unknown type. They've engaged over the new Athens and are holding, but just barely. The enemy deployed ground forces minutes after arriving in system. The civilian population was almost completely overwhelmed but a rash deployment of orbital drop marines is holding the line in the capital. Twelfth Fleet has been directed to reinforce them with all haste. We need information. The enemy is unknown and we can't fight in the unknown. How soon can we get a recon squad on the ground for proper observation? Respect, that might not be enough. We need to send people behind the lines, and we might not even be able to hold the system for more than a few days. Any recon potential is a suicide mission. (coughs) <coughs> yes, Advisor Keltha. We may have an agent you can use. He's currently deployed, but we can recall him to have him on New Athens in two days. Can your fleets hold that long? Yes. But we can't guarantee they'll be around to extract this agent. We can work out an extraction plan later. And it's just agent. I see. A nameless. Fine. Send him. Colonel, work with the advisor for to figure out how to get the agent off that rock when he's done. The entire galaxy will need to know whatever he finds. Godspeed, gentlemen. Dismissed. New Athens. Scourge War. Day 7. Zik! Crap, 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 crap! I stumbled to my feet and sprinted across the cratered hellscape that used to be a city park as more bolts of energy launched over my head. They found me! Not good, not good, not good! Fates Be with me! I dove under another stone formation. The hunter-drones wisdom pursuit, blasting at the rock. It wouldn't take them long to find a way in after me. Thankfully, I only needed a few seconds. There! I popped a maintenance hatch open and dove into the tunnels under the city. I'd chosen that particular formation deliberately. For whatever reason, the enemy swarms didn't like to come down here. I didn't know why, but I wasn't complaining. The map I'd pulled up in my ocular implant display let me go wherever I needed to. These tunnels had saved my life a lot over the past few days. After a few minutes of jogging, I ducked into a service room I'd been using for a supply cache. I needed to review the intelligence I'd just gathered. My pickup window was later today, and I still had to check out what looked like a prison camp to my low-orbit surveillance drone. Current data first, scout later. So far, I'd managed to catalog 12 varieties of planet side swarm unit, from the little hunter drones that would just chase me, all the way up to the tank-sized armored behemoths. That would bring down an armored troopship in one shot. There's gotta be a uh, less cliché name than swarm. I couldn't check the insectoid imagery, though. All of the enemy troops looked like bugs. Well, except the nanite swarms. Those don't look like anything. Also, new thing, that. As I typed up a new entry, I considered the other find I'd made today, or rather, confirmed. The swarm units definitely had some kind of link intelligence not a hive mind though or if it was the queen allowed the individuals a great deal of autonomy but they got smarter when more were nearby and they could share sensory data communications also seemed near instant at least with ranges of a click or less maybe that's why they don't like tunnels being underground interferes with that link exploitable in the field maybe my tablet chimed as i finished the latest addition to my report time to go. I grabbed a few ration bars and some spare batteries from my stealth field, then headed towards the edge of the city. There was no swarm units in sight as I exited the tunnels. A nearby building, a few dozen meters tall, offered a good place to scout the prison camp. I'd already checked that it was clear, and I made my way to the top floor quickly. Why did the bug things have a prison camp? They'd always killed everyone they came across before. What were they doing rounding them up now? Maybe they're looking for a physical weakness. No, they overrun the other systems without breaking stride. They know how to kill humans and Seth. I camouflaged myself in the rubble of what had been an office of some kind and glassed the camp with my rifle scope. Yes, it was definitely a prison camp. The prisoners, mostly human, but a few individuals of other species as well, were left to mill about in the walled area. There were a few roof-like structures on Poles, I guess for protection from the elements. As I watched, a group of prisoners were forced into an area separate from the main compound. What were they doing? I dialed up the magnification. This area only had a force field containing the prisoners. I watched, in growing horror, as a cloud of nanites descended into the cage. The prisoners jerked and twitched, screaming as the swarm did something to them. One by one, they fell to the ground, dead. What the hell was that? As far as executions went, it was terribly inefficient. An experiment? I checked the time. Still two hours until my rescue force would arrive. I turned my attention back to the camp. Another group was being led into the experiment cage. The previous bodies had been cleared away. The nanites descended again. And again the prisoners suffered. This time though, a few of them got back up. Are they still alive? I dialed up the magnification again, and my heart plummeted. They were moving, yes, but I wouldn't call it alive. Their movements were unsteady, shampoo. Their bodies were marked by cybernetics, just visible on the surface of the skin, just like another swarm units. And their eyes, their eyes glowed, a sickly yellow. Their movements were becoming more sure as they wandered around. Suddenly, I understood. The swarm captured planets conquering their populations, then repurposed them into new swarm units. This, this enemy will be a scourge on the galaxy. I continued watching the procedure for some time. As sick as it was, I had to record as much as possible to bring back. Finally, my tablet buzzed. one hour until the rescuers would arrive. I quietly packed up my nest and made my way back to the street. As I crossed the tunnel, motion caught my eye. A flight of hunter drones rounded the corner. Of course, it was at that moment that the human spirit of chaos decided to act. The battery, powering my stealth field, went dead. Damn you, Murphy! I ran. Energy bolts blasted thunks out of the concrete wall as I slid under the vehicle door. The building itself shook as an anti-personnel high-explosive round detonated in the street. The hunter drones had gotten back up from one of the bigger units. I brought my rifle around, going prone to check under the door. I sighted down what I figured was the head of the unit, and I'd labeled as a shock trooper. Bam! The shot blasted out one of its eyes, then it turned to look at me. My eyes widened as it brought its heavy cannon to bear. Oh, crap, 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 crap. I scrambled to my feet and barely managed to leap out of the direct blast. The shockwave still slammed me into the wall. Ow! Oh! Luckily, nothing was severely damaged. The designated LZ was only a few blocks away. A few blocks, and about a hundred swarm units, maybe more. I was screwed. Then my tablet buzzed again. The rescue force would be arriving right now. I had an emergency beacon in my pack. If I could get it set up, reinforcements could drop on my position and hold off the swarm long enough to get the evac ship. I grabbed my pack and ran for the back of the building, ducking across the street outside. I reached in and grabbed the beacon. Energy bolts blasted over my head as I took cover behind a plot of trees. I keyed in the code for the highest priority with one hand as I blindly returned fire with my pistol. I got lucky as one drone went down. Sometimes you gotta love the aim assist. The beacon set. I dashed to the door of the nearest building. Luckily, the rescue ships had come in hot and there was only a desperate minute of duck and cover before the first squad of orbital drop pods slammed. To the ground outside, the hatches burst open on explosive bolts, and the Marines came out shooting. Their heavy power armor absorbed the lighter blasts of the hunted drones, and their Omni rifles made quick work of the heavier units with bullets, energy blasts, and micro missiles. I took out a few swarm units with my rifle as they mocked up. A Marine with the lieutenant markings came over to my position. Lieutenant Harmon Dardeshi, 9th Marines, Third Battalion, reporting. I gave a wary laugh. <laughs> By the fates, I'm glad to see you guys. You arrived just in the nick of time, I think to say. More drop pods slammed to the surface, discharging the Marines. Lieutenant Desi grinned through the faceplate. Yep, that makes us the big damn heroes, or something. But you look like hell, agent. What's next? Well, my work here is done. And you're the guys with the ship. This is your show now, Alti. He looked around as the machine secured the perimeter. Well, we can't stay here for long. The dropship is still coming in the original site. It's the only real option for an extraction under fire. The rest of us grunts should be down soon. We'll need to get over there, and I imagine reinforcements are coming. I nodded. I can upload a tactical package if your suits can receive from the Ceph tablet. Should help with some of the battle. Really? That'll be great. You should be able to receive if it is in standard format. He paused, consulting something on his tactical display. We're gonna move, Johnson, he gestured a Marine over. Sergeant, take three men and guard this agent here. He gets to that dropship at all costs. Got him, Johnson nodded. Yes, sir. Jenkins, Mulrooney, and Karuba. Form up on me. We're gonna make sure this guy doesn't miss the bus, he turned to me. Don't worry, sir. We'll get you and your intel home safe. The relative car was shattered as a heavy artillery pole slammed into the building across the street, raining debris on the Marines nearby. Everyone up, there she yelled. Fighting retreat to the LZ. Double time. Move, move, move. We moved. It was six blocks to the LZ. It took us two hours. The enemy pulled swarm unit after swarm unit at us, and we cut them down. But despite the ferocity of the Marines, we were getting cut down too. Private Mulrooney was taken down by a melee unit I dubbed the Thresher. And Specialist Kuruba got his leg crushed when it was stepped on by a juggernaut One of the tank-like units, Johnson and Jenkins, hauled me past the defended line as Karuba lay firing his omni-rifle into the underside of the Juggernaut. Seconds later, seconds later, the street shook as he overloaded the fuel cells in his armor. The LZ itself had been secured by a separate drop of marines. Our contingent was pinned down about a hundred meters from their perimeter. We were down to thirty-one marines from the original drop of a hundred. Lieutenant Deshi came over the comms. All right, boys, we all knew this might be a one-way trip. The only one of us that matters here is the agent, and the data he's carrying. We need to get him to the rest of the guys. Sergeant Johnson, you and Jenkins, get him across, no matter what. You hear me? The rest of us will cover you. Got it, sir. Johnson nodded grimly. All right, everyone, in three, two... Jenkins suddenly leapt from cover, charging straight at the enemy, yelling a battle cry. Oh crap! Everyone, go go go! The rest of us charged right at our position. Johnson all but shoved me ahead of him across the gap. God damn it, Jenkins! I heard over the com. It was a breathless few seconds before we hit the perimeter, followed by a scant few survivors. Lieutenant Desi was not among them. We hunkered down in a blasted-out building to regroup. A corporal approached us to update us with the situation. Agent Sarge, okay. Major Ruiz is overseeing the fallback perimeter around the LZ. He pulled up a map on the hollow display. We're out here at an extreme perimeter. It's mostly covered, but you can see that there are some gaps, and we're pretty sure that there's pockets of the enemy hold up here, here, and here. Once we start pulling in, things are going to get very messy very quickly. We'll probably end up fighting our way to the fallback point, despite our best efforts. The Major has a squad tasked with getting you guys there. They'll follow your lead. Catch your breath while you can, because we're moving out in one minute. It might even be less than that if the damn swarm comes again. We nodded warily as we ran. The new squad joined us, and a moment later the order came to move out. Perhaps sensing weakness, as the enemy moved, the swarm units redoubled their attack, rushing the positions we were abandoning. I watched as the rear guard was eviscerated by close quarters shock units, before my squad pushed me forward. The retreat was chaos. Every energy brass cracked and flashed all around us. Artillery pulses blew out pieces of earth, burying squads in debris. We lost two members of my escort when a kamikaze unit exploded a few meters from us. There was no time for a medic. Another three were gunned down when we stumbled across a nest of entrenched anti-personnel units. A barrage of Omnifire made short work of them, but their ambush cost time and lives. We barely made it to the fallback perimeter managing to take cover around a building as an artillery barrage tore up the street behind us. We made our way straight to the building to be used as an LZ. Major Ruiz met us there. Thank God you made it, boys. Listen, the evac dropship is on its way now, but there's quite a furball going on up here. He pointed to the sky. I thought you came in the stealth ships, I frowned. An artillery strike rocketed the building. Well, yes, Ruiz replied. But the swarm ships found one frigate when we dropped We jumped in a carrier group to hold them off, but we won't have much of a window. The dropship's coming from the pretty far out, so we'll need to hold for at least thirty minutes. Can you manage for that long? Johnson interjected. We'll hold. We'll have to. Ruaz nodded. I looked out over the battlefield. The command post had good sightlines, Too good. I watched as units of marines were overrun. The perimeter barely hold. I shook my head. There's no way, even if you do hold. I made a quick tactical assessment. If I get out, none of you do. The two humans looked at each other. Ruiz spoke. Agent, are you familiar with the Battle of Thermopylae? I shook my head, and he continued. Something like three thousand years ago, an unstoppable empire invaded Greece, the birthplace of one of our greatest civilizations, the ancestor of our modern society. A group of a few thousand Greeks held off an army of ten thousand for three days. One group, the Spartans covered the retreat after they were betrayed. They stayed to fight. All of them were killed. Johnson picked up the story. They were buying time and it worked. The other Greeks mobilized and beat the invasion. The Spartans died to make sure Greece would live on. I understood then. These marines had never expected to return. They had dropped onto a fully occupied world for the sole purpose of buying time. They were selling their lives to buy the galaxy, a fighting chance against the scourge. Now I knew why we called humanity the hero species. I saluted them then, these heroes. It's been an honor knowing you, Hero Ruiz, Hero Johnson. They returned the salute. The moment was ruined as another artillery barrage brought down a building across the street. We took positions at the edge of the landing site. All right, ladies, Ruiz barked. Dropship inbound in. He checked the display. Twenty-two minutes. The agent is going to be on it. Now these skittering sons of bitches around us are going to do their damnedest to kill us. All before then. But I say we're going to take so many of them with us, we won't need fortifications for all the corpses. What do you think? The response thundered around the final holdout. Hoorah! 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 The Major grinned. Let's give them hell! The last stand of the 9th Marines, the battalion, commenced. The swarms kept coming, and we kept firing. When Marines' omni-rifles ran dry, they pulled out plasma-charged blades and ran into the enemy, usually taking down at least three units. None of them ever broke. Even if they backed away to a new position, they did so while pouring fire into the enemy. One Marine killed three swarm units as he was torn apart by a fourth. Another was literally devoured by one of the larger units. He armed the grenades on his vest as it happened. None of them broke. All of them fell. The swarm burst onto the rooftop just as the dropship arrived. Ruaz went down under a mountain of them. He was still firing just as Johnson picked me up, sprinted to the open ramp and threw me in. As the ramp closed and the ship took off, I saw him being mobbed by dozens of threshers and other close-quarter units. He fired into them, one-handed, as his other hand primed a grenade. His last, long, defiant battle cry rang in my ears, Get Ficked! From Adam, A Memoir of a Hero Species End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1873 Story number one. A show of force written by a lone donut. Braxia held its breath. Not literally. Very few planets actually breathe, but the population sat in momentary terror. Eyes watched the skies and waited. Four standard months ago, diplomacy had broken down between the human nation of the Alliance and the Braxians. It had started honestly enough. Human raw material exports were destroying Braxian industries. They sought to have the Alliance slow its production and even limit the amount of Alliance-produced resources that could be traded across the Galactic Trade Commission. The rest of the human bloc had opposed this. The Rish's manufacturing sector relied heavily on the constant flow of Alliance materials, and the Nomads regularly sent their citizens to crew the Alliance mining and maintenance platforms, slowing that industry would have negative impacts across all three exporting human nations. Even the Guides, known for their peaceful and non-interference in galactic affairs, had joined their kin in protest. Of course, the Commission refused to get involved at first. A lot of other members relied on human exports. Alliance drone ships moved a lot of goods across known space. But as the Braxians rattled their cage and threatened to begin blockading routes through their space in protest, these sections of known space that were heavily used for trade increased pressure threats of sanctions bounced around, and formally the Alliance discontinued relations with the Braxians outside of the GTC. The rest of the humans followed suit, and soon Braxian industries that relied on elements of human trade began to suffer. When the human bloc refused to let up its sanctions, the Braxians turned to state-sanctioned piracy. The first couple of Alliance ships hit were small transports. It would have gone unnoticed if they had kept to them or at least had hired non-Braxian privateers to handle it. But word got back to the Alliance Council, and the contempt turned to rage. Escorts started traveling with state-aligned transport companies. The Alliance Navy moved in tandem with the various trade routes, until this too drew the ire of other nations. Suddenly, warships, small as they were, were starting to move through other Commission members' space. Given the human capacity for war, this concerned some people. An emergency session was called, and the commission demanded a resolution. The Braxians doubled down, and the Alliance threatened war if their industry was targeted. The Braxians called the bluff, swore that the Alliance would never be so bold. Braxia would never bend to such idle threats, their representative had exclaimed. As these things go, it didn't take long for things to get hot. The Braxian privateer happened upon what they thought was an Alliance merchant vessel, Alone. They descended on their prey, ready for the ambush, and disabled it with ease. Once aboard, they realized their mistake. As the beacon transmitted across space to the distress, and the crew sat on the floor of the cargo hold, the privateers realized their mistake. This wasn't a merchant. It was a medical transport. The powder kick that the Braxians had been building had been lit, and fury flowed forth. Alliance warships arrived in Braxian space, hitting outposts on their borders. The attacks were precise, though. Every outpost hit was never destroyed, but its industry ruined. Mining stations and gas extractors were left intact, but their capacity for industry was ruined. The Braxians prepared for a conflict, rallying the troops and preparing to move to defend the Rum. But then the Alliance navy arrived at Braxia. The home fleet was swept aside and battlecruisers took position over capital cities. The general of the fleet broadcast a message in front of the landing craft aboard his flagship, a warning that his people were set to land in the cities of Braxia and burn their infrastructure. It would take a day, if not more, for the Braxian main fleet to return from their outer edges of space, by which time the human ships would have bombarded the planet from orbit. The threat was real, and it was here. And so Braxia held its breath. Not literally. Very few planets actually breathe. But the population sat in momentary terror. Eyes watched the skies and waited. The outline of Alliance cruisers in low orbit and the atmosphere crawled with Alliance transports. Loved ones hugged and bunkers became crowded. And just as soon as they arrived, they packed up and departed. Within a day, the skies were once more clear. The people would learn that the Braxian government had offered reparations and to withdraw their claim to sanctioning Alliance resource trades. In return, the Alliance had agreed not to occupy their home planet and to also help them establish newer mining technology to compete more actively. All it took was a small show of force. End of story. Story number two. History repeats itself. Written by Apophis Pegasus. 26.42 26.42 The Grasnian pirate ship, Skirriuk, silently, floated through the edge of Imperial space. The burnt remains of a pleasure yacht, a few dozen light years behind. From that pleasure yacht, they had obtained a cargo so precious that selling it would likely have them sitting pretty on some pleasure planet for the rest of their lives. And to top it all off in the interim, the cargo didn't even seem to mind that he was being kidnapped. How... He was even cracking jokes. And then she looked at the honeycomb and said, uh, I'm not sure that's how that works. Rackus laughter reverberated around the hold as the young human regaled the Grasnians with tall tales. Looking at him, you would never guess that he had just been violently taken hostage. In fact, looking at him, you wouldn't think that he was more than a rich patrician's son, with too much access to daddy's and maybe a good chunk of mommy's money. But there he was, yucking it up with a bunch of seven-foot-tall, green-skinned murderers like they were old academy buddies. Initially, this had confused the Grasnians. Prisoners usually just begged for mercy, maybe excreted a few fluids. One tried to build a shrine to them of some sort once. But they, like all good pilots, simply shrugged and decided the entertainment was worth any weirdness and gotten him a drink. Besides, it wasn't like the human was a threat. He was so small and squishy, no armor plates no claws, not even a damn venom gland. Honestly, it was a wonder how they'd gotten their riverhamus Imperium in the first place. I like you, little human, bellowed the commander drunkardly, clapping a giant hand on the human's back. Shame will be selling you, the human grinned, patting the large Grasnian's hands. Not if I don't slaughter you all first, big buddy, laughed the human in reply. That brought another round of laughter. The human had a deliciously morbid sense of humor. He had been making similar clips all day. The human's small stature only added to the hilarity. The human giggled quietly as he shut his eyes, drowning out the cacophony, his neural implants signaling in all directions. There should be at least one outpost near here. Just have to- There! One was- Scrunching his eyebrows, he concentrated. As he did so, the deep voice of his father floated in front of his memory. Armed outposts along our borders, son. (laughs) Very well. But they would be your responsibility. He smiled. When he got back, he would have to thank a father for the funding. A couple thousand kilometers away, an automated station activated. A Class 1 distress signal had been sent out and the station responded according to the protocol panels of its side slid open and thousands of spather class penetrators swarmed out of the weapon stalls simple but effective these weapons were consisting of an adamantine tipped spike on the fore end, some guidance systems and a high level thruster propelling it for a fraction of the speed of light making the arm-sized projectiles punch far above their weight milliseconds later the station coughed out a core class space chute, Consisting mainly of nanotech matrix and a ceramic-like substance, it took the form of a compact teardrop shape during the flight, but could unfurl into a skin-tight spacesuit in a matter of seconds. Together, the two sets of technology sped towards the pirate ship, transmitting the ETA to the activator on board. On the ship, the human was beginning to regale the pirates with yet another tale, to the rapt attention of the Grasnians. All right, guys, here's a killer for you. It's about a gruo of guys who just couldn't take a hint. As if on cue, the first penetrator burrowed into the hull, through the commander's face and out through the other side. For half a second, there was silence from the pilots, with the only sound being the atmosphere bleeding from the two holes in the hull. Then all hell broke loose. The remaining penetrators sliced through the outer hull, control panels and bodies of the pirates without breaking velocity, turning the ship into a pitted wreck and its unfortunate crew into hole-filled carcasses in seconds. Miraculously, none of the penetrators appeared to touch the now grinning human. Exhaling softly in the now near vacuum of human waited patiently. Five seconds later, the teardrop-shaped suit floated behind him, attached to his back and expanded into a textured black suit. Floating amongst the wreckage of the ship, penetrators swirled around him like a swarm of agitated hornets. Cages inhaled then let it all go in a maniacal guffaw, lasting a good minute. Well, that was fun, he smoked underneath his helmet. Shame about the yacht, though. Then he engaged his thrusters and began flying to the outpost station, his entourage of penetrators engaging in a full speed behind him. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1874. Tesseract, written by Graveyard Operations. The sterile room again. Everything was so white. Everything was so clean. The fluorescent light that silently hummed above our heads reflected off the pristine white tile floors and the plastic tops of our desks. The room was dead silent. Even the dozen or so people who were with me here didn't make a sound. These people were unfamiliar. Different from the groups I had been placed with in the past week of this nightmare. That's what it was. It was a nightmare. It was always a nightmare. A recruiting nightmare, actually. I have the ability to lucid dream. The attention of the assortment of faces and people all turned to the masculine voice who spoke. My train of thought interrupted as a man in pristine, black, finely tailored suit entered through what appeared to be nowhere. His hair was slicked back, styled with a haircut. That seemed to be as expensive as the suit he was wearing and just as black. A pair of circular glasses rested lazily on his nose, facial features stern, yet soft enough to suggest youth. The man barely looked to be thirty years old, just blossoming into true adulthood. That is the phenomena precisely six of the fourteen people in this room are thinking right now. An amused scoff escaped his nose as he moved over to the podium, towards the front of the room, where each of us were facing at our desks. It was always the same, these recurring nightmares. I would wake up, sitting in this room with no windows or doors. The room was dark white, the white of a gallon bottle of bleach. The walls seemed to be made of simple plaster. The floor a polished tile, shimmering, and in the way two bright fluorescent lights from above. The desks would match said reflected tile, only adding to the intrusive brightness from my groggy companions and I. Every age group, every race, every ethnic group was present. If not present today, they were present before. Everyone, from teenagers to the elderly. Our attire always starkly contrasted the room itself. Most of us were in pajamas. Embarrassingly enough, more than one of us was stark naked. No one seemed to pay any mind to the nudity, however. Despite one of the older men in the room being one, I confess, my right eye twitched just a tad as I tried my absolute best to keep my attention fixed on the well-dressed, olive-skinned, black-haired man standing behind the reflective white podium before us. Allow me to introduce myself and apologize for the past week of trials and tribulations you've all gone through in your test groups. He cleared his throat. My name is William Garrett. I am a director of organization currently putting you through these paces. Each and every one of you here possess a talent not common amongst the general population. That talent is lucid dreaming. So, uh, like, uh, you're saying you're Leonardo DiCaprio or something. Are you going further into a dream or something? One of the younger members of the attending class chimed in, causing a chuckle out of most of us, myself included. Even Mr. Garrett seemed to chuckle, amused. He raised a hand, signaling all of us to pipe down so that he could speak again. I realize the nature of this congregation may be a bit unsettling, or even silly to most of you. I understand the pop culture ramifications of this impromptu interview. Rest assured, however, the dreaming aspect of our congregation is only the basic qualification for why my organization is interested in you all. Think of it as a building block for what you represent. William reassured in his deep, classy New England voice, a pleasant enough smile on his lips. The organization I represent is known as the Bureau of Dimensional Intelligence, or rather BDI for short. This organization has existed in many names and many titles over its six-century-long tenure. Six centuries! An the woman spoke, her face fretful, unkempt curly grey hair spilling over the sides of her head down to her shoulders back. She was clad in an adorable pink pajamas with cartoon kittens sprawled across her matching top pants. What's the exact year? She asked. Presently, or at the organization's funding, presently, it is the 7th of December, 2020, at 0200 hours on the east coast of the United States. Precisely. It is 0249, oh, now it is 0250, the organization was funded in 1478 A.D. In nice, Franz," William replied, my eyebrows knit as I leaned forward in my seat, the desk shifting with my new posture. How do you know the time? I asked. This is a dream, right? It is impossible to know the exact time in a dream. It's one of the ways I know if I'm dreaming or not. Dates and times never match well. What's the time right now? My accusatory tone must have amused Mr. Garrett, as an ear-to-ear grin appeared on his lips. 0251 on the east coast of the United States, miss, he answered. However, that is incorrect question to be asking yourself right now. The time matters little, especially in a place like this. In fact, only one person in this whole room has asked themselves the question that matters most of all. A question I will allow for precisely 90 seconds for all of you to ponder before continuing. That question is, if this room has no doors or windows, how did I get in? I lifted an eyebrow, taking the time to allow my chocolate-brown eyes to peer around the room. The stark white walls didn't have any windows, nor did they have any doors. My eyebrows didn't thought. How did this man get in? Even weirder, how come none of us questioned him suddenly appearing? How come he was wearing a suit and not pajamas like the rest of us? I thought I was terribly clever, though, and a grin to match Mr. Garrett's own formed on my face. I laced my fingers together, black nails clashing with my gaunt, pale skin, while I crossed one leg over the other. Because you're not real, you're a figment of my imagination. I chimed in smugly. My smug demeanour, however, was washed away by the hearty guffaw. Mister Garrett replied, <laughs> "Well, malady, and a potent one to boot." In any other circumstances, you would be correct. I can assure you, however, that I am not a manifestation of your subconscious. Though I am flattered that you would think of me as something your mind would conjure of its own devices. I am quite real. And I am quite aware of your thought process, Katie. I am quite aware of all your thought processes. Names, life stories, families, addresses, and mental instabilities. He mused. My eyes went wide. He knew my name. That was, nothing is impossible, Katie and Marcus. He nodded to the dark-skinned man sitting next to me. The same perplexed expression plastered on his face as it was my own. Which is precisely why I gathered you all here tonight. The last class of my organization is doing this year for potential recruits. The BDI has a need for those who can operate outside the bounds of common human psyche. Being able to lucid dream is going a good start. Being able to adapt while not in control of said lucid dream is even more profound. Thus, before we begin with the final test... I will allow for those of you who wish not to proceed to leave. He nods to the class. I understand the past week of your testing has been terribly haunting for some of you. You made me watch my parents die in a house fire. Marcus answered. The bald, middle-aged man, growing furious, nose wrinkled. You made me watch. I couldn't wake up, and I always can make myself wake up from nightmares. You made me hear them scream. If I wasn't so sure, getting out of this desk and knocking your fecking teeth in would be a waste of time. You'd be on the fecking ground. I'm not interested in joining your goddamn organization, you fecking monster. I just want to know why, why the feck are you torturing us? The jovial, pleasant demeanor of William shifted at Marcus's accusation. The aggression Marcus possessed seemed to shift as William's two blue eyes peered into the large, angry man's soul. Marcus sank into his seat, as if a child again. The fluorescent lights almost dimmed at how upset William seemed to be. Placing his index finger and thumb over the frame of his glasses, William pushed him up the bridge of his nose and sighed. (sighs) It would be a waste of time, Marcus, William calmly confirmed. The answer to your question is simple enough, however. Should you join our organization, should you choose to be a peer beyond these white walls and to both the lucid dream and waking world, what you will see will shake the very fabric of your sense of self. It is that sense of self that we are attacking. Unfortunately, that requires a uh, tolerance to witnessing the most deranged acts humanly possible. We are not openly malicious, Marcus, but our agents must be capable of a mental fortitude to cope with trauma. Watching your loving parents die for a week straight, over and over, is one of the most barbaric methods we have for testing your resolve. Your presence here, now, is proof that you are capable of withstanding the onslaught. Perhaps you should ask some of the others in this room, now. Oh, it appears many have left during my ranting. I blinked, looking around the room. Three people. Out of the fourteen people that were here, only three people were left. Goosebumps ran up my arms and down my back. I didn't even notice they left. It was just Marcus, that older woman from before, and myself. Everyone else just vanished. I reflexively swallowed down my stomach, sinking low into my seat. Just like Marcus had, the older woman in the pink kitty pajamas wrung her hands together nervously as she watched both of us instead of William. Her attention was soothing in a way, as if my own grandma was looking out for me as our most demonic captor fixed his attention on Marcus. You're a sick feck, Marcus barked, albeit meekly, causing William to laugh, shrugging his shoulders into fate. I suppose so. I am forced to be with potential recruits. It is disappointing that only three of you chose to stay, but I suppose I knew that from the start. It is better than last year's class. None chose to remain in that collective He confessed. I'm shocked, however, you didn't bother asking yourself what your fellow students went through. I can assure you that you were not alone in your trials and tribulations. The old woman and I seemed to look down in unison. My eyes closed at the memories of their torture flooded back. Like clockwork, as I began to recall from my own torture at the hands of this bureau, I could hear the buzzing all around. I brushed my long blue and violet hair behind an ear, as I slowly began to remember the agony of the hornets stinging me. I'm very allergic to bees. When I was eight, I was put in an emergency room because my throat was swelling up. A week straight of being in a damn room, only to have a swarm of hornets cover me, stinging me, unable to wake myself up as my throat began to close and I couldn't breathe. I would have cried right there if I didn't think William would get some sort of sick satisfaction from my myself. I am many things, Miss Holmes, but I am not a sadist, William answered my trade of thought, walking over to my desk and placing hands on it. The man's very aura was imposing. I take no pleasure in the suffering of this hell week for potential recruits. As I said, it is necessary so that we can gauge your mental fortitude. Dr. McCormick over there had to watch her entire wing of the hospital die. Marcus had to watch his parents burn to death. You had to experience the agony like none other. I, uh... Firstly, all of those years ago when I went through this, I had to watch my wife wither away into dust in my arms. All of our individual suffering is irrelevant when it comes to the threats that we face in the Bureau. William responded. Marcus grunted, scowling, rising up from his desk to stare accusingly at William. Despite the gravity of our discussion, the only thing I thought of as, as a dark-skinned, well-toned, incredibly attractive man stood next to me, was how incredibly naked he was. To make the terrible pun, it somewhat took the sting out of all of this. "'Yeah? You don't think I see enough of that crap as a firefighter? You don't think I don't beat myself up enough about the folk I don't save? Had to make it my parents. Feck you and feck your damn company!' Hawkins barked. Mr. Begarit looked over at the man in distaste. "'Your response is disappointing, but not unexpected.' William retorted, monotone, unflinching, despite Marcus towering at least a foot over him. Though I suppose I know why you specifically are here, Marcus. You say feck my company, but you still can't help but shake the one thought that is blooming in each of your minds. That thought being, if that hell was only training, what was the training for? That I can show you. However, first of all, I would welcome all three of you to a proper in-person interview in one week's time. You'll instinctively know the address to go to. You'll instinctively know the time to attend. None of you will be late, William replied, moving back over to his podium, turning to face each of us with a vicious smile. The Bureau's responsibilities extend far beyond your own personal suffering. The bureau's humanity's contribution to the needs of society far beyond normal comprehension. For you see, my future agents, William trailed off, snapping his fingers. Just like that, the stark white walls seemed to fade away, and before us, the vastness of an unknown cosmos stretched before us. No ceiling, no walls, just a door, desks, and a podium remained. Behind William spiraled a supermassive black hole of a galaxy, with tendrils of a radiant power expanding out as if to grasp each and every one of us. Entire arms of a spiral galaxy spun around us as each of us looked on in wonder. Every living organism in the cosmos, in this dimension, in our universe experiencing itself, we are the universe aware of its own experience. We are the universe's lucid dreaming. We are the aspect of the universe's dream, absolutely aware of its own existence." We do not stare simply into the void. We are the void looking in on itself and beyond to those who dare to. 22 species of intelligent organisms are known to exist in this galaxy alone, and none of them, like humanity, can see what we can see. Humanity alone stands apart to see what horrors lay beyond the third dimension. They see only the face of the Tesseract. We see... With that... The galaxy, the stars, and all the beauty of the cosmos seemed to fall away from us. An insidious blackness appeared. An abyss of emptiness that I cannot even begin to put it to words. The buzzing of insects appeared in my ears again, and I began to scream. I couldn't help myself from screaming. The inky blackness cascaded around our feet as the buzzing only grew even louder. Whispers of an insidious nature echoed throughout the buzzing, whispering my, name, whispering my life in an instant. Every bit of my twenty-two years of life was spoken to me at once. Every regret, every fear, every hope burned. I screamed, we all screamed, each one of us likely hearing our own tragedies laid out before us as the floor of the room, as well as our feet, became consumed with the darkness. Eyes, dark violet splits in the vast abyss of emptiness, appeared to look down at us as more and more of our small little plot of sanity was choked up by the dense blackness. I couldn't see anyone anymore. I couldn't see Dr. McCormick. I couldn't see Marcus. I could only barely see William, who stood there unimpressed by the Void's gesture. His attention seemed fixed on me, and slowly, as more and more of myself seemed to sink into the inky darkness that surrounded us, he began to laugh. At least, I believe he started to laugh. All I could hear was that damn buzzing. Answer the phone, Katie! What? I called out reaching a hand out for him desperately as his desk I sat it fell away from under me while I sank lower and lower into the void. Your phone's ringing! What are you talking about? I called out. Help us! I begged just as my head became consumed, and I felt myself sinking lower and lower into that terrible, cold emptiness around us. I screamed and screamed and then screamed more, only to be met by that fierce buzzing and I shot up out of my sleep, my hair an absolute mess as I breathed heavily. Once again, I was in my crappy apartment. The darkness of my room was a pleasant surprise compared to that swallowing abyss that I had just experienced. It took me more than a few minutes for my heart to slow down, and my panting to slow enough to realize that it was, in fact, just a dream. I groaned as grogginess and awareness creeped back into my mind. The buzzing was my phone as it vibrated on my nightstand, which rested right next to my bed. I rubbed the sleep from my eyes, peering at the screen. Scam likely, my biggest fan. Scam likely must have called at least twice a day. They didn't often call at, uh, at, uh, 0302 in the morning. Jules ran down my spine. Answer the phone, Katie, I repeated to myself, stretching out a shaking hand to my phone and sliding the answer button out, putting it to my ear. Uh, uh, hello? I asked. Caitlin home?" a woman's voice on the other end asked. Yeah, um, do you, uh, do you have any idea what time it is? Why are you calling? Welcome to the Bureau of Dimensional Intelligence. We'll see you in a week. Click. I pulled my phone away from my ear, staring at it in horror, a hand over my mouth, horrified. It was real. This is all real. Oh... Crap. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1875 Story number one. The Perils of Trying to End the World or Xenu as a Bad Decade. Written by Alex Sylvian. The world came to an end at 9.53 Eastern Standard Time, July 24th, 3191. This was considered very odd because it was supposed to happen seven minutes later. It all started on a cloudy night ten years earlier. All clouds, everywhere, on a planet Earth disappeared. Then the stars rearranged themselves in the sky. They said, Hey guys, I'm getting kind of tired, so uh, I've decided to end the world, okay? The lead scientists in the world came together to discuss it, and they agreed. There was a 99% chance of it being a coincidence. Very unusual, but nothing to get excited about. Once in a millennium occurrence. The next night, the stars realigned again, saying, It's not a coincidence, you blithering idiots. The scientists convened again. They came forward with a prognosis. There was a 97% chance of it being a coincidence. Then a lot of them were fired. All the leading religions got together and broadcasted into the air. Is that you, God? The answer came back. Ah, see you You know, the Scientologist guys. I revealed the truth to L. Ron Hubbard. But all he wanted to do was make money. The leading Scientologists immediately sued Zina for presuming how totally illegitimate religion is for money. L. Ron Hubbard's ghost, he said that we could keep the scam going forever. Whoops. And Mr. Mtumba Ullaboy, the unluckiest man in the world, why not. Al Ron Hubbard's ghost was unavailable or comment. Point is, it turned out the people of Earth objected to the whole world-ending thing. Zidu shrugged and started it anyway. He soon discovered ending the world was a whole lot harder than he had thought. His first attempt was a meteor strike, no, but no sooner did he let the meteor fly than humanity was already mining it for rare resources. Turns out it was full of platinum. By the time it reached Earth, it was the size of a very small pebble. The small pebble bounced off the head of a tumba boy and made him very annoyed. This second attempt was a storm that lasts 1,000 years. But humanity had figured out weather-changing machinery back in 2135 and switched it to the light sunshine with occasional breezes and life-giving rain and a rare snow to spice things up that lasts 1,000 years. short. For Zeno tore out his scales in frustration. Irritated, Zeno decided to extinguish the sun. This bothered the humans for a hot minute, and then they just switched their energy panels to absorb heat from the distant stars instead. They also turned on a lot of radiators. Now truly angered, Xenu opened the gates of hell and commanded the legions of demons to march forth and conquer Earth. Humanity quickly dispatched them with a few well-placed newts, then made a deal with whoever survived. Soon, the Earth was running with twice the energy it had when the sun existed. Helogy was the wave of the future. Frustrated, he decided to unleash the four horsemen of the apocalypse. This did not go as planned. First, it turned out the Pestilence had already been hiding on Earth in the guise of a 300-year-old Jenny McCarthy. When her legions of anti-vaxxers found out that she was literally the manifestation of disease, they, uh, didn't change anything. Then they all died an easily curable death, and McCarthy was launched into space. Moore took one step on Earth, looked around, knocked him tumble boy to the ground and said, Well, jeez, how the hell am I supposed to improve on this? He then retired and became a professional wrestler. Famine actually managed to leave a swath of destruction until she came across an old Jewish grandmother who said, Oi, oh, nothing but skin and bones here. Eat a little something. Of course, it is impossible to refuse food from an old Jewish grandmother. So Famine had no choice but to eat, and in doing so, stopped being Famine and had to resign her commission. Death did a pretty good job, as he always had for thousands of years. Seems he'd gotten the wrong memo thousands of centuries earlier, and had started work immediately. He profusely apologized. Good to at least be getting some recognition for my work. I'm kinda swapped. Finally, Xeno sent everything at them at once. Dragon, plague, blood, fire. For a masterstroke, he unleashed Cthulhu. Surely now those bloody humans would perish. Cthulhu seemed to be friendly, so they just dumped him in the sea world and charged people $9 to see him. Cthulhu was pretty much okay with this, though he did have a bit of a bad habit of seizing patrons and launching them 100,000 miles into the air. The dragons, plague, and so on might have been a problem. But Earth's lawyers got on the case, and it was soon discovered that due to a clerical error, they were only allowed to bother Ntumbi Illiboy. He expressed his opinion as extremely bothered. At last, Xeno just stared down at Earth and screamed in impotent rage. You think that you're so smart, humans? Well, tomorrow at 10 o'clock, I'm gonna kill myself, Then everything will fade into non-existence. Let's see how you like that. Of course, the people of Earth had been preparing for this since day one, and activated the DRP, Dimensional Relocation Program. At the stroke of 950, the DRP's field was activated, and Earth was relocated to another dimension, one with less planet-destroying god-lizards. There were only three casualties. A bird that had flown too high and escaped the DRP field, a suicidal astronaut who wanted to see what the death of a non-existence felt like, kinda floaty, and Intumba Alaboy, who by sheer coincidence got thrown by Cthulhu 100,000 miles into the air and hit Xeno plumb in the face. "'Typical!' Xeno said, and died. And that's why the world ended seven minutes early. End of story. Story number two, I Still Stand, written by Teller of Tall Tales. We still stood after all those awful, bitterly cold battles. After every snowstorm and icy night, we still stood gone. Once a settlement, now a city. Frost Guardia stands tall and glittering in the perpetual winter sun. I remember her infancy. A few enviro hubs and a singular shuttle port to the bustling metropolis that now stood. Yet we still stand guard despite the massive turrets atop the walls making it worse. We still stand, even though we fell. The war was beautiful in a way. The battlefield alight with spatters of technicolor blood. Dead men of many races posed like war heroes in their frozen resting spots. We made it through the first war with few losses. We were ill-prepared for the second way. But still, we stood in the way of the invaders. They were our friends, our family, our homes. We were protecting. Many have taken the stairway in the centuries since, taking the reaper's hand into that blessed, burning light. More and more have been going each day, sensing no need to protect our beautiful home anymore. In that sense, they were correct. There was no need. I watched the shining gateway to the afterlife close. One of my men, a young boy at his time of passing, named Carter, had left today. I don't blame him. Poor kid was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He deserved peace. Yet still I stood... Alone with no one but the reaper approaching me. I unslung my rifle and propped it up against my shoulder, holding the buttstock as I snapped a salute to the cloaked figure. All is quiet on this front, sir. I stated as though he were my commanding officer. The hooded figure looked at me blankly with that expressionless skull of a face before speaking. Commander Slate, I feel I know your answer. But shall I open the gate so you may pass on? I kept my salute. No, sir, I'll stay here and stand guard. The Reaper nodded slowly. Then he was gone. I slung my rifle back over my shoulder. The wind nipped at my skin still as I stood watch over the frozen tundra. I remember the feeling of the enemy lasers that burned and charred my skin. The kinetic slugs that tore me apart. I remember the cold as it slowly took me away from my people. I heard a soft crunch of snow behind me and turned. He never forgot. My old friend padded up to me, raising his thickly furred head for a ghostly pet. He was well fed. His fur was thick and warm. I didn't know who's taken care of him for me in the ages since I died. But I wanted to thank them. Furred dragons lived for thousands of years and when they bonded with you, they bonded with you for the rest of their life. He sat beside me, staring into the snow-swept landscape. If I'd left, he'd wondered where I'd gone the rest of his life. And I couldn't do that to him. So I still stand until the day me and my longest friend may face eternity together. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1836 May Man Can Dream, written by Wolfie Wonka. Sleep, amongst the thousands of languages in the galaxy. The word translates reasonably well between most of them. There are some, like the hare, who had a hard time first understanding it. Their homeworld was a rotational period of three hours. Night lasts as long as it takes to prepare to eat a good meal. Going unconscious as a natural body function is a concept that was foreign to them. Yet, the idea of rest translated as easily as the periodic table. The phrase, deep rest, was all it took for them to grasp the fundamentals of sleep. They are a curious race, and so merely understanding the fundamental was not enough for them. The foreign concept of sleep attracted them like an explorer to an uncharted island. Some say the research and understanding of sleep should be left to those who, well, sleep. Others say that unattached and unbiased were perfectly suited to the task, regardless of opinion. They have spread throughout the stars in search of complete understanding. And for a while, they had it. Thousands of races catalogued, studied and tested. Every part of sleep was understood and written down in a scholarly fashion. Then, an adventurous researcher traveled down the Orion Arm and outwards into the backwater that was mostly devoid of intelligent life. There, the researcher entered a small isolated empire known as the Sol Republic. He was looking to collect data. What he found would not have a word in any of the 24 languages he spoke. Dream. The researcher was baffled. In his first interview of the new race, one of the humans, as they were called, described participating in events while asleep. How does one do that while unconscious? He stood in the primitive market, contemplating the flow of bipeds that passed by his stand. Not a unique sight, but, he thought, perhaps a unique people. He went back to the spaceport inn and sat down heavily in the high gravity. He learned how to access the human's data net. He was led to a data group called Wikipedia, of which he was impressed by the culmination of a knowledge and small empire had gathered. He was further impressed by the fact the race had progressed from exploration of their own world to interstellar empire in just under a thousand years. Such a timetable was rare even in the vast encyclopedia of the Sekhez-contacted species. Yet despite the impressive amount of knowledge collected in the data group, he still did not understand the dream. The colony was small, being on the fringe of the empire, and so it had no scholarly institutions, but it was large enough to have a medical complex. From Wikipedia, the researcher knew human medicine was based on science and was as advanced as any other field. Thus, the researcher concluded this was where he could find someone to explain the dream. The researcher was directed toward the room, where he was told to wait. It had a nanobot-based diagnosis machine, a blocky bed, and a jar full of wooden strips. After a while, the door opened, and a Xeno medical specialist was a tall and lithe man, relative to the rest of its species. Compared to the researcher, he was squat. He introduced himself as Solomon, Gailey, I correct? Or am I butchering that? Gailey adopted an expression of horror. The specialist must have been good at his job because despite never meeting a member of Gailey's race, he interpreted the expression correctly. Oh, gosh, I'm sorry. Butcher is a term we use when we pronounce a name incorrectly. I really need to stop saying that. Yeah, I see. You. Yes, my name is Gailey. Good, good. He checked the state bed. I hear you're having problems sleeping. No. I have questions about sleep that I hope you can answer. Solomon paused. Questions? I'm sorry, but we don't have your race and record. I can't answer any questions about your sleep. Not my sleep, but yours, Kylie replied. Mine? Solomon seemed at a loss and vaguely disturbed. Yes. How can humans sleep and conduct activities at the same time? Solomon scratched his head. Well, uh, what do you mean? Are you talking about sleepwalking or... His eyes lit up in understanding. Ah! Dreams! You're curious about dreams. You're not the first, you know. Giley thought about that for a minute. The researcher's hunger for knowledge grew. Yes, I'm curious about dreams. I am a researcher. Solomon sat back. Ah, I see. Well, just so you know, I usually treat patients and answer questions about my race, not just the latter. But I suppose for a researcher I can spare a few minutes. Ask away. Giley smiled. In his own way. What are dreams? How can a human be unconscious and do things at the same time? Solomon smiled. That's actually a pretty common question I get. You see, we're not actually doing those things. Our brain just makes it up. Kylie let that sink in. Makes it up? Yeah. Human minds are very, um, compartmentalized. Not everything that happens, happens within our consciousness. Sometimes, a part of our mind we're not aware of creates something of its own, separate from the part of our mind that is actually conscious. Guiley was only more confused, but as a researcher, he was used to it. So some of your thoughts, um, aren't your thoughts? Solomon laughed. It was apparently a joy that his species baffled the researcher. Pretty much, a good example is when we are convinced a shadow from an object is a person. The part of our mind that isn't us, our subconscious, decides it's a person. Then it tells our consciousness it is. We actually see a person for a fraction of a second before we realize it's just a shadow. Giley blinked. He was only more confused. But how does that relate to a dream? Well, dreams are what happens when the subconscious, the part of us that isn't us, is given control of the mind. Giley processed that. Solomon continued... It happens when we're asleep so we don't actually go and do what our subconscious says to do. Giley spoke. But you're unconscious, you're asleep. What is there to control? Solomon grinned again. He obviously explained this before, and this was the part where it got good. When we're unconscious, our minds create a world for our subconscious to play in. Giley again processed that. Play in? Solomon nodded, still grinning. Like a child plays in a playground, exercising, experimenting. Just like how a child might eat a flower to see what happens. In sleep, our mind simulates the situation to see what happens. Simulation? Guiley was spending all of his mental energy comprehending this, and it was a lot. Solomon continued, Yes, a simulation, like on a computer. How you test something without actually testing it. Sometimes it's, uh, what happens when I try to fight a graphic mercenary. Other times it's, what happens when my wife grows two heads, then the walls aren't walls, and uh, I can put my hand through the table. But Solomon laughed again, still with a mildly terrifying grin on his face. Exactly. Sometimes they don't make sense. Other times, though, they fit the world perfectly. But how? How do you create these dreams? Solomon lifted both shoulders in a gesture. Well, uh, we still don't quite know. Dali sat a little bit straighter. The seed of an idea was planted in his head. But the best I can explain it is our subconscious grabs past memories and current stimuli and tries its best to make sense of it, like how it turns a shadow into a person. Then it takes what it made and runs with it. Kylie's confusion began to fade, and understanding paired with awe began to take its place. So you mind is two. One is you, and the other thinks for itself. Solomon nodded, smiling. And these dreams... They are your uh, subconscious creating a world and uh, learning from it. Solomon's smile grew wider. And uh, each part informs the other, giving you the knowledge gained through both the rational and irrational parts of your mind. Solomon slammed his hands together and laughed, smiling even wider. <laughs> yes, yes, you understand. You are the first hero. You beautiful bastard. Guyley tried his best to interpret that. He concluded it was a compliment. Solomon spoke through a massive grin. I've had tried so long to get that across. Most Xenos, they smile and nod and pretend they understand. But you, you, uh, who are you? A sick It was Solomon's turn to be awed. A sick I've heard of you. Are you planning to send a research division to our little corner of the galaxy? I uh, believe we are now. Solomon smiled and thus began the golden age of man. The Sekhe did not send just a research division to the Seoul Empire. They sent their research, period. Every Seker wanted a piece of the dream. It was fascinating, and rightfully so. Predictions, inventions, and even victory in battle had been created in sleep, of all things. Commerce followed the flood of inquisitive Sekhe, and with that, the Empire of Seoul swelled to encompass the entire Ryan Arm with its influence. At one time, another empire attempted to steal the wealth of the Sekhe. Humanity crushed them, and like that, the two races became like sisters. To this day, they are both intertwined as if they both started on the same rocket space. It's a good match. Humanity provides the dream. The seker provides the knowledge to make that dream come true. Many say man does not deserve this power, that humanity is nothing special. But they're wrong. A man can dream. End of story. I would quickly like to thank the T5 channel members and Patreons. Caspar Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Marky, Lord Azrakal. It's difficult to pronounce Dragzoon WRE. Holly's sister, Arcadian. Thank you very much.